When you do some of these things, they make perfect logical sense to you, and then you put them in front of an audience, they go, holy cow. Welcome to the Wages of Cinema. <laughs> nah, that's that's. I'm not falling in the canyon. I'm still in place. Um, yeah, welcome everyone. It's nice to be back talking to you. You know, I'm Jack, and I'm Wifely Duty Corey. Yay! And we and you had quite the duties with me this past month. Um, yes. Yeah. So to to get started with talking about this, I. I think that another, like, a function of, I don't know if a function is the right word, but something that I've discovered while our quarantine times have kind of kept going on, even though technically we're not really under quarantine anymore and we can go out, but movie theaters are still closed except for drive-in theaters, and, you know, so we're still watching pretty much everything at home. I found that a good way to kind of keep my mind and my my movie going self kind of satisfied is to look at maybe one filmmaker and start and really dig into their work. Because um, I feel like if you know if you're gonna have a lot of time in your hands, why not you know be obsessive compulsive and <laughs> you know and re- and you know pick apart everything that an artist has to offer and. Uh, Earlier this summer, I thought maybe Fellini would be that for me, and it, it briefly was, but then I moved on, and then uh, Liz Shelton, when she... Uh, Lynn Shelton, excuse me. Why do I call her Liz? That's not fair. Uh, Lynn Shelton died, and so that spurred me on to watch uh, a bunch of her movies, um, which, I, which I also hadn't seen. But somehow, someway, maybe because it's, you know, the hot, sticky summer, and you know, you need something to kind of keep you refreshed. Uh, I guess uh, De Palma kind of came back into, uh, you know, my mind as, as something that not just for me to revisit, but also to get you more deeply into. Yeah. This was so overdue on my part because all this time, Brian De Palma has been making movies tailor-made for me. (laughs) His tastes are my tastes. His aesthetic is my aesthetic. You know when you watch a movie... You know what? You mean you mean you mean misogyny? (laughs) (laughs) What what problem do you have with women, Corey? (laughs) But have you have you ever watched a movie and felt like the director made it for you? Well, yeah. I mean, that's part of why I'm a movie fan because I you know, found filmmakers who I felt like, ooh, this is my aesthetic. Well, I... Like, you know, you know when, I, when I say, like, Ingmar Bergman or Jean-Pierre Melville, it's like, ooh, this is, this is me. Well, one thing I kept thinking through our month of De Palma was De Palma is speaking to me. He's making these movies for me. Aww. I felt like, well... 
of course, I'm going to have some nits to pick for some of the movies we talk about. Mm -hmm. But on the whole, I found this an immensely pleasurable experience. And I feel like I went too far in my life without seeing some of these movies because... These movies, I feel like, were made for me. I feel like De Palma knows exactly what I want. Now, when, well, to try and define that, because, I mean, with De Palma, with Brian De Palma's films, and, you know, he, he's made a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, the idea that I had with us doing this episode is that we're not, you know, we weren't going to watch all of his movies no. again. You know, because, frankly, I think that, you know, as as much as you say his aesthetic is my aesthetic, I think there are a few of his movies that you would not really like. I mean, we say your aesthetic is my aesthetic. I mean, Mission to Mars would yeah. not be for you because you no. don't give a shit about space. Um, I don't think we were going to rewatch The Black Dahlia because <laughs> no. that was a bit of a, a misfire. I mean, we also didn't watch the like the crime films that he's actually probably best. I mean, that's how I first really had known him, um, you know, which were, you know, Scarface and The Untouchables and Carlito's Way. And, you know, and it's funny because I, I actually think Carlito's Way might be, you know, one of his very best movies, but I, I wasn't sure if that was something to really put into this group of his work. You suggested it and I vetoed it because I said it it was looked too long and serious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing is that he, what he was best known for were you know, extremely visually elaborate colorful stylish thrillers with, you know, big bombastic scores and a particular affinity or maybe we might just call it almost a, like a fetish for Hitchcock. Yeah. So. Um, so that was really where we kind of decided to focus on. For me, what was fun about this um, was I hadn't seen a lot, a number of these movies in almost like 10 to 15 years. So getting to revisit them with you, it was like I was seeing them completely like fresh. Yeah. And and some of them I, I liked a lot more than I did before. Some of them I I had more a little more issue with. Yeah. But yeah, but I think his what's great is his 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 style is generally pretty consistent. You know, and yeah. we're covering about thirty years of his career in this episode. Yeah, and when I say that I feel like De Palma was making these movies for me, I <laughs> <laughs> because you're a trash panda? Yeah, I am. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I am, you're such an adorable trash panda. I have kind of lurid tastes, and I there is nothing I love more than a kind of pulpy, melodramatic movie about obsession. Yes. So obviously and, I was pretty happy with some of our selection. Yeah, and, uh, and, the, and another movie we actually won't be talking about, even though... Um, because because it has been talked about at length on this podcast previously is Blowout, uh, which I did as the first episode of the uh, cinema immersion tank. That was when I watched the movie over and over again over a week, and you can go back in the archives and find that. So you and you and Andrew talked about Blowout. I watched Blowout with you once. 
I liked Blowout a lot. I thought it was really good. My only critique of it, of Blowout, which you don't agree with. Yes, I do. Go ahead and say it. The music is fucking terrible in no! Blowout. It's so bad. You actually... No. See, I remember us watching Blowout, <laughs> and you didn't have a problem with the music until the end. Oh. And, like, I remember, <laughs> like, you were really into the movie, and then there's that beat when... John Travolta is holding Nancy Allen in his arms, and I won't, you know, spoil why, but, you know, then the music kind of rises, and you were like, this is so overblown! I couldn't hack the music, but I liked the movie very much. Oh, the music in that movie's beautiful. Oh, it, it really touches your heart. Like, Blowout for me is like a synthesis of everything that was him firing on all of his cylinders. Like, it was very... You know, you know, he had a, a, a style that was, you know, following people and, you know, using a lot of the different tricks, but it was also about something and, you know, conspiracy and all that. Now, I know we're going to break down the movies chronologically, but before we get into them in detail, do you just want to say really fast all the movies we're going to talk about at the top so that people know what to expect. Yeah, that might that's actually probably a good idea cuz like I said, it, it when we you might think like, well, you know, what, what you know, he has so many movies, how do you break them down? Well, here's the list. And I apologize if you're expecting one that we're again not going to talk about, but the movies up on our docket are in this order Sisters, 1973, Phantom of the Paradise, 1974, Dressed to Kill, 1980, Body Double, which is 1984, um, Raising Cain, 1992, Snake Eyes, 1998. For some reason, my car, I put that as 1992. I guess I was seeing Double, <laughs> which is, you know, Snake snake Eyes. And then uh, Femme Fatale from uh, 2002. Um we had also watched another of his movies much earlier this year, Passion. Yeah. Which uh, I actually think is really underrated. Passion was really good. Yeah, that I felt like was something that was in the back of my head as to why I wanted to do this. But because we saw that so long ago, we're not going to include that here. I just mentioned, though, that if you're curious about Passion, that's probably his best underrated movie yeah like i feel like that movie did not get a lot of buzz when it came out but it's really good yeah yeah that that's like that's like when you see a you know one of these classic rock uh, stars come back to like a comeback <laughs> album and the comeback album's really good um but anyway uh, and generally speaking you liked all of these movies i liked every movie except femme fatale yeah, and, and well, of course, we'll get to that. Um, and I, I like them to various degrees. I'm not going to say that, oh, my God, all of these are, uh, you know, I turn into, uh, oh, the, who's the guy from inside the actor's studio? James Lipton. Yeah. And then you made your grand masterpiece, <laughs> Raising Cain. <laughs> why don't we talk about the Shakespearean prowess of John Lithgow? <laughs> well, actually, he is a Shakespearean actor, but anyway. All right, so yeah, so that was our idea is that we'll we'll try to trace, you know, these films more, you know, in terms of their order, and maybe see how he developed some of his, you know, visual ideas and you know he and I feel like there's a lot that he comes back to in his work. 
Yeah, I saw a lot of common themes. Yeah, I saw some things that, you know, whether he was doing it as a, you know, as a winking nod, as a kind of a wink and a nod, or because he's just that OCD about it, he, he, he comes back to shit. Um, I wish we were recording this in split screen. I feel like that would be the best way to honor. Split screen, or if the camera was looking at us with a split diopter. <laughs> Do you know what that is? Like, because you're laughing. Like, I should tell the audience that a split diopter is when the camera is actually looking at two subjects in the frame, you know, in, in the scene. And they might, and they're pro, and they're actually kind of far apart from each other. So, what you can do in the in the with the camera is you can have them both be in focus, but in a way it almost makes it kind of split screen. Um, Tarantino does this a lot, so you know he, if you he's probably done this in like every one of his movies, um, but uh, but yeah, and that's that's. Or I, we should be doing it while while I'm like following like a tall like attractive blonde. <laughs> no, I should say before we get into it. <laughs> <laughs> my apologies. Before we get into our first movie, sisters, I would say one of the things I was wrestling with throughout our trip through De Palma's catalog is I enjoyed most of these movies a lot, but one thing I'm wrestling a little bit with in terms of how do I evaluate De Palma in the canon, so to speak, is I'm still wrestling a little bit with, for all the man's skill and talent and how much pleasure these movies gave me and how intricately crafted and entertaining they are, one thing I'm still wrestling with a little bit in terms of is De Palma a great director, is... Does does he have a lot to say underneath the admittedly amazing style? Um, he he has a lot to say depending on the film, if that makes sense. Like I because th- we, we got another movie we're not going to talk about, but is also really great is uh, Casualties of War, and that's his Vietnam War movie. Um. And, you know, and that movie is basically just, it, it's a giant metaphor for America's rape of industrialized, you know, under industrialized nations. And, uh, and that movie, I feel like had a lot to say about, you know, toxic masculinity and, you know, the worst that's in humanity. But again, we're not watching that movie <laughs> that has more to say than something like Raising Kane. <laughs> and I think that with, in this case, it, he's tricky because, uh, I, I mean, I don't know if you've read that much about him over the years or heard any of the scuttlebutt, but he's no, not kind really. of a controversial guy. He's had a lot written about him over the years because, you know, you, th- you think about somebody like Scorsese or uh, or David Lynch or, uh, or more recently like a Paul Thomas Anderson or, you know, or... or Catherine Bigelow, you know, generally it's kind of considered like they're just great film artists, you know, and there's not, you know, you can argue about this film or that film, but there's no argument about that. De Palma, it's like some people call him a great artist. Other people call him a total hack. Some people call him completely derivative. Some people say that he, you know, hates women and he can't control himself to 
you know, constantly have violence against them and what that means for, you know, film and how that's very harmful. And, but it's tricky because again, he, he's lumped in the same group as, um, you know, that group of, of directors, the movie Brat. So he, in, in that documentary De Palma that I was rewatching as well, where he's interviewed for just an, an entire movie, uh, it's on Netflix if you want to check it out. You know, he talks about his best friends were Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Scorsese and uh, Paul Schrader and these people. And I think that even though he was kind of in that group, he was he was kind of the one who, like, my sense is he thought he was better than everyone else, <laughs> but he also just loved making the like the kind of films he did and didn't try necessarily to make like a last temptation of Christ or a Schindler's list. He was content with maybe casualties of war was like the one big mm. attempt or, or whatever. Um, but I don't know. So it's, I guess it, de it depends on the movie. Like there are times where he tried to maybe say something. And then there are other times where he's like, well, I just want to make a big hit. I'm going to make mission impossible. And I know how this can make a lot of money. Why'd you say I saw Mission Impossible when I was a kid and I thought it was super boring and I never saw it again. <laughs> well, um, okay. <laughs> Mission Impossible's fun. Like, again, that's another movie we're not going to talk about entirely. Although with Snake Eyes, I might come back to that a little bit. But I think the problem, too, is that when he did, occasionally when he has tried to say something big, you know, it's Bonfire of the Vanities. <laughs> and you know, he then kind of fell flat on his face. Well, I definitely don't think the man's a hack. I mean, these movies, his talent is just immense. Well, the other thing, too, is comparing them to what these movies could be. I mean, we, you know, we, I have seen a number of Lifetime movies by now. Not as many as you. <laughs> I'm sure that if you wanted to, you could have your own separate side piece podcasts <laughs> about lifetime movies and you know you would have a lot to say about those but there's no like there's no like brian de palma in that world you know you don't have someone who is trying to use cinematic technique and use like what you can do with lighting and actors and elevate it like i feel like he's in a tricky position because he makes like art out of trash well i was thinking that one of the reasons why i'm still wrestling with this idea of for all of his talent and all the pleasure that he's given me how much does he have to say i think one of the reasons why i'm wrestling with this is i feel like at least the movies we chose for this they don't really exist in our Earth reality. They exist in a heightened artificial reality. It, it exists in the reality of, like, paperback books and stuff. Like, you know, it's, you know, in particular, like, you know, something like Body Double or even, you know, Dress to Kill. I mean, you could take the basic elements of the plots of those and it would be something that you could find in, you know, a book that back in the day you'd get for like, you know, 10 cents. Um, it's just that there, it's in a different framework of, you know, craft and there's more money and, 
you know, you have all these different performers that we'll get to. For the most part, I didn't find these films derivative, but I found that they were kind of one step removed from the movies that they were referencing. And when I say one step removed, I feel like De Palma brought them into greater theatricality mm-hmm. and less naturalism. Well, which and, I really enjoyed yeah, as a viewer. Yeah, but. well, I think the other thing, if he does bring something else, I think he does have a bit of, like, he does have some satirical edge to him. Yeah. I think he is trying to... Like, these movies are also very funny, on yeah, the whole, are. too. Like, and I th- and they're intentionally funny. That's the big difference, too, with, like, when I was mentioning Lifetime movies. You watch those, and, you know, as much as I enjoy my Eric Roberts <laughs> as, you know, Dr. Becker, you know, I'm not necessarily watching him thinking, oh, uh, this, this is really, like, intentionally <laughs> funny. No, I'm watching this thinking, this is fucking stupid. <laughs> so maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm struggling with this concept of how much these films have to say because I'm buying into this idea that great films have to be somewhat naturalistic. Yeah. Which is probably not some, which is probably kind of a false way which, of looking at things. Yeah. I feel like when we're all, when we're done with this, if you're still interested, I should show you some of, uh, like, Pauline Kael was a huge champion of De Palma on the, on the whole. Uh. Except for one movie, oddly enough, like, she wasn't that big a fan of Body Double. Which is nuts, because, <laughs> spoiler alert, Body Double but, is by um, far my favorite yeah. movie out of these. Yeah. I love Body Double and, so much. And and it's funny, like, like you know, I mentioned satirical stuff. I mean, he started originally making, you know, much more, less thriller movies and more, like, just straight-on satirical attacks on society. Like, I had almost considered showing you this movie, Hi, Mom, mm. which actually my mom first told me to watch years ago and that's a movie where like robert de niro is just like watching people from like his room and like in other rooms and there's also just this there's this great sequence where this guy is like on the street and like like asking people like you know person on the street style like like, and he's asking white people, hey, you know what it's like to be black in America? Do you know what it's like to be black in America? And, like, you hear the different responses, and it's like, wow. Um, and I think there's always been that to him. So that helps him stand out, is that he has some type of... It's like, you almost don't know sometimes if he's doing a Hitchcock homage and he's being serious, or if he's, like... Sat, like parodying it uh-huh. you know and that's what like eventually too like we'll get to some of this it's just like yeah I, I, I don't think like I can take this any more seriously than like airplane <laughs> <laughs> alright but we should get into it now yeah let's, so let's talk about Sisters yes um, so Sisters is uh, is Sisters your favorite of the movies we're going to discuss um not quite, but it's up there. It's one of my favorites. I, I I like this one a lot because I I think that this is where he really this is the first one of his films actually that is he you could t- like he was really taken from Hitchcock in a way that no one had really seen before to the point where he um 
I think originally was, uh, I watched a documentary on him. He talked about how he was originally using music from Psycho on, you know, to, it's like what we call temp tracks, like, you know, the temporary music. And then his producer was like, why don't we just get Bernard Herman? Sisters, they were once one in body and perhaps one in mind. Danielle and Dominique, one loving, one hating, one innocent, the other... Where does Danielle end and Dominique begin? the devil hath joined together, let no man cut asunder. Oh, the score is great. Yeah, and that's, and you hear it, and it sounds like, you know, he, you know, De Palma maybe, I don't know if he said it to him or not, but he's like, yeah, give me something like you did with uh, your boy Hitch. And uh, and the story of, of Sisters, for those who don't know, it's, um, it's about this uh, woman who, uh, uh, Margot Kidder, and she meets she meets this guy because they're on like a game show. Yeah, I think I forget the name of the game show now, but it was it was something kind of funny. And you know they they go back to her place and uh, but even though but but they it's a little tricky at first because like they're out to eat and this guy comes up to them and it's played by William Finley and it's her uh, ex husband. Uh, I think it's. Uh, well, the problem is I forget now because she's credited as she's well, well, she's actually playing two characters in this. Um, one is named Danielle, and the other is Dominique. And William Finley is the ex-husband, and they try to lose him, and you know they go back to her place and spend the night, but there's something that happens involving like, uh, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, she has these pills that she needs to take, and something seems a little bit off with Margot Kidder, uh, her character, uh, not least of which she's kind of sporting a Canadian French accent. Yeah, which, which is... sounded almost Tommy Wiseauian to me when we were watching the movie. It did not sound French Canadian to me at all. Yeah, she was like a proto Wiseau person. Yeah. Which is, I enjoyed the performance very much. So. Oh, yeah. She's amazing in this movie. Um, but then suddenly, um, her, like, this guy leaves and goes to get a cake. And uh, when he comes back, it's like she's in bed and you know, he's like, well, everything's okay. You know, have, you know, it's actually like a birthday cake, I think. And then, boom, he's suddenly stabbed in a very graphic fashion. Um, and this is also the first time that we see the use of split screens for, from De Palma. And in a very clever way, because when we talk about split screens, it means that we're seeing two actions going on at the same time. And how it's deployed is really, really great, because he's laying out for us all this information that, you know, another director might, you know, cut between the two things where the other main character here, Jennifer Salt, she's like a 
happens to be living across the street yeah. from them and happens to just be a local reporter for some Staten Island paper, <laughs> which is kind of funny because they cut to these little shots of like her news clippings and they're all like big ex exposés of stuff in like local, you know, hap things going on. So she has a contentious relationship with local law enforcement and she's also trying to advance her career but because it's the early 70s there's a little bit of hey there little woman don't try to have a career bias against her mm -hmm. see brian de palma knows about the struggles of the working woman <laughs> <laughs> yeah and other and other kinds of women that we'll we'll get to <laughs> like you know he's not just writing like cardboard you know cut out women in, in his movies um but yeah so while she's like trying to get the cops to you know to the apartment because you know he sees she sees through the window this guy is like just been stabbed and is dying and she tries you know she calls the cops it's like there's someone who's been killed in the apartment across the blah 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 yeah you know, she tries to get the cops we're seeing that in one of the you know the, the two screens the other screen shows her um william finley show up and they suddenly need to get rid of the body very quickly yeah and you might think like you know it, it the one thing that could strain credulity is okay they're getting rid of this body pretty fast but how they do it is it's like one of those touches that is you can tell that you know de palma is taking another kind of hitchcock note you know this idea of um the the kind of fun of getting rid of a body <laughs> But it feels original for him. Like, he's not just aping something that he just did. He's doing, you know, his own kind of trick right there. It was highly entertaining, even though, again, the idea that you could just stuff a person's body in a fold-out couch and the couch would just fold up. No. Um, <laughs> when I was a kid, my parents had a fold-out couch, and... Um, one of the dog's tennis balls was, like, left in the fold-out couch by mistake. Mm -hmm. And and the tennis ball kept the fold-out couch from folding back correctly. Really? So this idea that you could just stuff a full-grown man's body in a fold-out couch. Well, especially because it wasn't, like, a big couch. Well, uh, maybe they got a special <laughs> deal from the couch store. I, I don't know. That being said... I found it justified by how comedically satisfying it was. Yeah, again, it, it works because it's funny, and yet we're in on the joke. That was, you know, a thing in a lot of Hitchcock stuff where you're, it's almost like a sadistic pleasure type of humor to it. And so the rest of the movie, it, it you know, you think that at first it's going to be about this relationship between this this guy and this woman. And no, 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 it's about investigating why, you know, what's up with Margot Kidder. And, you know, I mean, you think at first, did the sister do this? You know, because again, the title is Sisters. And then De Palma has a lot of fun with this idea of conjoined twins. And, you know, if they, if you can suddenly separate conjoined twins and, you know, what if one of them goes crazy and... Um, you know, if they, or if maybe they're both crazy and I, and I, it's, there's just a lot of just great, great scenes 
in this movie. Like, there's a moment when Jennifer Salt winds up at this insane asylum, and like she's trying to get on the phone, and this other woman who's there in the asylum like tr like tries to ask her what she's doing, and it's just like an insane uh, moment of. <laughs> of what, like this one actress, I don't, I don't even remember her name, but like she she really stuck out to me. I don't know if you remember what I'm talking about. Well, yeah, I my thing with this movie is I'm a little torn because I think about sixty percent of this movie is phenomenal, like spectacular, but I do have a kind of significant structural critique of it, which mm -hmm. is that. I really resented that the Grace character, the one who's investigating the murder, mm -hmm. is basically elevated into being a co-protagonist mm. with the Margot Kidder character playing Danielle slash Dominique. And I, frankly, I didn't think the movie needed that much of her. I uh, See, I, I disagree. I think you needed to have that, so to speak, nor normie character. You need someone who the audience could at least kind of see themselves through because the rest of the movie is filled with crazy people. Yeah, see, you liked the fact that we have um, almost like an audience surrogate character to follow, whereas I just wanted to be immersed in crazy town. I, I, would, have had, I would have had more of a problem if she was there from the beginning, but uh. she's not introduced until like half an hour into the movie. I think the problem is, though, if you took out the Gracie character, like, you're just following Margot Kidder, uh. and she's just... And, and also, well, William Finley, I guess you could have made a movie following him. Well, I don't want to get rid of the Grace character, but I feel like she should have been more of a clear supporting character, because at one point we leave Danielle slash Dominique for a significant chunk of the movie and just follow Grace. Whereas, to me, Grace should have been a more clearly subordinate supporting character. Hmm. I, I, I don't know. I, I think she does really well in the part, too. I think that's why I, I didn't have a problem with it. Like, I, I again, it's it's part of that, that Hitchcock approach where you got to have somebody in there who, you know, you can follow along with. It's like when you watch Psycho... You know, you gotta have, you know, as, as boring as he seems, you gotta have, you know, uh, I forget if it's Rod Taylor, I'm confusing that with the birds, but you need that, you need Vera Miles, you need to have some normal oh, people. Oh, I loved the black and white documentary footage yes. of Danielle and Dominique. Well, yeah, well, that was the thing I was, I, I think there was a certain point in the movie where you were like, I like this movie, but I'm not that crazy about it. And I was like, well, there's 20 minutes of the movie left, and just wait. And I had actually forgotten that so much of that last, like, 20 minutes is in black and white. But and it was... excellent. Yes. Yeah, it's oh. very audacious. And again, that's why I think De Palma stands out in as a filmmaker, is because he, he takes chances like that, that not a lot of other directors would do, where he, uh, he makes it very eerie. You know, it's like this character is now in this insane asylum, and it—I won't describe everything that happens, but it—it—it 
it feels like something from like a silent movie. Did you think it was Lynchian? I thought it was Lynchian a bit when we were watching it. Although um, a touch, I mean, well, it was Lynch before he even. Yeah, I know it's like <laughs> pre-Lynch, Lynch, but I thought it. Was, I understand. It's it's very macabre. I thought it felt kind of Lynchian, mm-hmm. although. If anything, I thought it was even slightly better than a lot of Lynch. Not all of Lynch, but... Mm. So, I I liked this movie a lot, but my one critique is too much yeah. time with Normie Grace. Yeah. How do you like uh, William Finley? William Finley is one of the great untapped resources of American <laughs> cinema. I am so angry that... No other director besides De Palma has fully tapped the and, amazing well that is William Finley. Unfortunately, I, I looked it up, and he, he passed away uh, about 10 years ago, so no one else will. Oh. Um, yeah, it, it's funny because, again, we're not talking about this movie, but he pops up briefly in The Black Dahlia, and I think we actually... I'm, I have a memory of us watching The Black Dahlia mm-hmm. um, in the theater, and... I forget the the whole s- sequence, but William Finley shows up as an as someone who has a necktie and he's gonna strangle someone, <laughs> and he and I think another character like fall off of like a staircase and like fall like very far. Um, I think that was Brian De Palma kind of giving him like one last hurrah. Um, but that but I wanted to bring him up because you know he's especially creepy in Sisters. Because he's, again, like, the ex-husband who, you know, should leave well enough alone, but he also becomes the driving engine of covering everything up. Uh-huh. But then then we go into our next movie, where he's the, <laughs> the titular star of The Phantom of the Paradise. Yes. And um, this uh, this is a bit of, like, an outlier, you could say, in, his, in De Palma's career, because... It, it is a musical, we could say. I don't think he necessarily, he didn't really make any musicals exactly, even though his style could have lent itself to musicals. Like, I could yeah. have seen himself maybe if he had wanted to try his hand again. Like, that could have been interesting. Um, and this is, a, I think this really is even more satirical as far as it being about uh, the world of, like, of uh, music and you know shady uh, producers and studio labels and stuff like and that. And we watched *Fan of the Paradise* not long after we watched the movie *The Apple*. Yeah, and in <laughs> fact, I think that might have been one of the little things that made me want to start on this. Well, I didn't think we watched so many De Palma movies, but I did think watching *The Apple*. Man, I really got to show you *The Fan of the Paradise*. And you said you saw this movie when you were a kid. Yeah, so I saw this movie when I was a little kid, when I was in elementary school. Which but, is quite a movie to watch when you're that young. But I, I hadn't seen it since then, so I remembered virtually nothing about it. Literally, the only thing I remembered is when we get to the big conclusion of the movie, I felt a sense of deja vu. <laughs> But that's literally it. It's not even like I just remembered the climax very well. It's just I had that vague sense. Of... Yeah. I, well, I had it's it's funny because I had that when I saw Scarface uh, for the first time all the way through. Yeah. When it got to the very end, and uh, 
Al Pacino is getting shot over and over again by machine gun bullets, and he's not dying. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever, if you've ever seen the very end of Scarface. I'm sure but, I have. Well, you've seen, of course. I mean, the big part everyone remembers is you know, say hello to my little friend and all that. And the mountain of coke. The mountain of coke. But you know, he's in this shootout with like 50 people who are trying to kill him, and he's finally just getting shot over and over again, but he's not dying. <laughs> he's just getting shot. And he keeps saying, come on, come on, come on, come on. Lord, <laughs> and then, like, one guy comes up behind him and shoots, like, one big bullet through him. And that's what gets him, and he falls off into, like, his fountain. I had deja vu watching that because I realized when I was really young, like, maybe when I was, like, 10 or 11, I saw just that part of the movie on cable i i was just like flipping around i came to that and i was disturbed by it like i thought like oh my god what's happening to this guy and i didn't realize till later oh uh this is supposed to be funny (laughs) but anyway fam in the paradise uh as the tile might suggest this is De palma doing a very gaudy very uh stylish riff on phantom of the opera as um, uh, William Finley plays a character named Winslow Leach, who is you know, trying to write this epic uh, musical about Faust and yeah. wants to try to get a record deal. Um, he tries to go to Swan Records, run by the nefarious Swan, played by Paul Williams. And, uh, you know, Swan, you know, kicks his ass out. He gets set up and thrown in prison, uh, gets all of his teeth knocked out, and then Winslow finds out that Swans took all of his music and is creating a Faust musical anyway. Mm. And this makes Winslow flip out. He escapes out of jail and you know tries to go after him, but then gets his head caught in a record press. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> and you know, slithers down into the depths and creates like this outfit for himself and becomes uh, the phantom of the paradise and the paradise is the like theater where this is all gonna unfold um i i love this movie i think it it's it's so unique as just a a mix of all these different types of movies i mean it's a it's a it's a satire on how music gets commodified and yeah. you know you, there's just like there's no way of having something that's original everything gets turned into like crap as our former co-host Andrew once said 90% of everything is crap and <laughs> this is about that 90% but also about that 10% i guess you could say where it's not crap um it's it's also like a a tale of what it means to become a star, you know. And he because there's a split because the Phantom wants to make this woman a star, this woman Phoenix, played by Jessica Harper. Um, but the but Swan wants to make this guy Beef. That's yes. his name. Beef. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's like he. And then, like, a, a catastrophe happens the night that the the Faust musical premieres, because Phantom, spoiler, kills Beef. <laughs> and um, I just, it's, 
it's very much like you can tell it was made on a low budget, but De Palma is putting so much creativity into the camera work and the sets and the different kinds of music that are, that's in the movie. What I like, what I liked about this movie is I feel like De Palma understood that at the core, it's a pretty basic story. Nobody at the core level, it's not. No one's motivations are particularly complex. It's a pretty basic story where the emotions are big, but there's not a ton of nuance. So one thing I appreciated a lot about this is he went balls to the wall in terms of visual style, but this is not a long movie. No, no, it's only about, uh, it's only like 94 minutes. This is like a tight 90 minutes, and I really appreciated that De Palma knew that if he had dragged this out, I said to you... Some of these movies we watch now, I think if we wa- if they were made in 2020, I feel like Fandor in the Paradise, who was made in 2020, would be like two hours and ten minutes long, and it would be unbearable. It would include a, uh, a studio-mandated musical number like they've done in the, <laughs> the, Disney, the, the new Disney remakes, like how Aladdin was like a tight 90 minutes and the the remake was two hours. Yeah, so what I appreciated is this movie is really kind of florid and over the top in a lot of ways, yeah. but it's also tight and lean and... Yeah, it's tight and lean, and as you said, it's very broad. I mean, as I said, it, you, you start off with William Finley playing this guy Winslow Leach, and... There's a touch of, like, the king of comedy at the beginning of this, because uh-huh. he seems so much like kind of like a loser in over his head. Uh-huh. But, I, but I kind of grew, quickly grew to like him, and then all this terrible shit happens to him, and he becomes like, I'm still a good boy, I'm hideous, and... Uh-huh. He's playing it so big. Yeah, the characters are... Um, the actors are immensely charismatic. Yeah, and, and I think at the center of it, the one person he has, uh, Jessica Harper, is the only one playing it straight, but that yeah. that helps to ground it. And and she has, uh, she has probably my favorite number in the movie. I know you disagreed. For simple feeling I thought I knew you But I didn't know you at all Trapped inside your world of worry You miss so much when you always hurry Oh, slow down, baby You'll only get hurt if you fall Well, you told me one time That you'd be somebody interesting about watching this it got us to you know this is a bit of a tangent in a way but i think it all fits together we were discussing whether this or rocky horror picture show is better and i think rocky horror is better 
I I think Rocky Horror and Phantom are really kind of trying to do different things, even though they are big, you know, culty rock musicals. Um, I would say that Rocky Horror has more memorable songs, but I think Phantom of the Paradise is a better film. So... Like, I think it works better as far as having, like, characters and even as bouncy as it kind of is, it has a more of a through line. Well, I thought, what I said to you is, I think Phantom of the Paradise is more directorial flair. Like, another thing that we noticed in a lot of De Palma's films was the way he uses, would you call this forced perspective to make people look really big or to make hallways look really long? Yes. Would that be called forced yeah, perspective? Yeah, well, and yes, forced perspective, um, it, what's different in this movie, he was still... Like he had like an aesthetic that was a little different, but then by the time he gets to dress to kill, which we'll you know talk about in a minute, like this feels like slightly like a transitional movie yeah. because like he's using a lot of handheld. Like there are a couple of times where we're just following the Phantom like running down a hallway, <laughs> and it's very intense. But it's it's but he's following him in a much different way than. You know, like we see Angie Dickinson walking, you know, through that museum, or, or we're following the, um, what's his name and uh, body double, mm-hmm. you know. So it's he makes things very intense by making sure that we're, you know, in how he wants us to see it. If that makes sense. Yeah. So I thought this movie had a, had a lot more flair in terms of the camera work and how the shots were composed. But I said to you, I feel like the music in Phantom of the Paradise, it's good. It's fine. Uh-huh. But oh, it's more than fine. For me, when I'm evaluating a musical, I kind of have two. I have two kind of ways I can judge it. You can have songs that are fine in context, that are situationally fine, mm-hmm. and you have songs that are good enough that you would actually listen to them outside of the film. Mm. And when we were comparing this to Rocky Horror, I think the songs in Phantom of the Paradise are fine, but. We didn't watch this movie that long ago. And if you asked me, okay, hum, you know, sing a number for me from this song, from this movie, I couldn't do it for you. Whereas, oh, come on, you can't hum. Whereas, I actually listen to the Rocky Horror Picture soundtrack on its own because I think the songs are so good you can listen to them outside of the film. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Um. No, I, I get that. Um, actually, I think that the one thing that maybe separates Phantom, Phantom from the other films, too, I think that this might, it has a bit more of like an Orson Welles feel to like some of the cinematography. Like, that's how, like, when I talk about forced perspective, that might be what you're talking about. Where Hitchcock didn't do that, he did that sometimes, but like, when I'm talking about Welles, it's like when things are so big yeah. that it, it's like cinema is like kind of overpowering you with what it can do. Yeah, so we saw that in a lot of his movies, and also for a more recent example of this, Yorgos Lanthimos in The Favorite. Yes. The Favorite uses a lot of forced perspective. Yes, absolutely. And I think wide lenses and stuff. Yeah, and it and I think De Palma uses it kind of like Yorgos Lanthimos does to emphasize 
the kind of alienness of the surroundings and the kind of heightened artificial theatricality. Yeah, and you know, you can't get more theatrical than a guy who is hanging out in a in the in like the catacombs of a theater writing a musical for his you know, lady love and having to face off against, you know, the nefarious owner of like a record company. <laughs> and he was excellent too. Yeah. Well, Paul Williams, he's yeah. the one that wrote the, the songs for the movie too. The entire movie. I had this overwhelming sense of deja vu that I had seen Paul Williams in another movie. And then I even checked his filmography and I well, you and... Well, you had. It's just you didn't remember him. I mean, he pops up in Baby Driver. He pops up in the Muppet movie. He pops up in a few things. Um, I think that I... Again, he you know, he's a little bit before our time. I think he wrote some themes for some famous, like, TV shows. Well... Like, I might be wrong, but I think he wrote the theme for The Love Boat. Well... <laughs> Maybe <laughs> one of you listening can... Uh, inform me about my missing Paul Williams knowledge. Phantom of the Paradise was another movie, too, where the set design was amazing. Yeah, we'll talk about some of his set design on a couple more of these films. I'm I'm trying to look at this more because we've been listening to the You Must, you Must Remember This series about Polly Platt. Yes. So now I'm trying to, like, look and, like, pay more deliberate attention to set design when I'm watching movies. Hmm. But... Phantom of the Paradise, I think this movie is well, a lean, mean style machine. Well, here's Highly one, enjoyable. Here's one last question. Do you think you would revisit this movie like you would re- want to revisit Rocky Horror? Um, I would say I I would rewatch this movie again. I don't... Not as often as I've revisited Rocky Horror. Yeah. See, I would, I would love when, you know, when our current times are all over... You know, in the in the event that Fam of the Paradise was playing somewhere in a theater, I would want to go see it with like a big audience. Yeah, because I think that would be a lot of fun to have people that would be really who are fan maybe fans of the movie or you know would be really into the music. Because uh, I, I honestly I've listened to a couple of these songs outside of the movie and I I enjoy them. But that, again, that's maybe we, you know slightly different tastes in rock from that period, but. Yeah, I think you said that you said when we watched that Phantom of the Paradise had like a greater diversity in type yes. of song, whereas Rocky Horror is just like relentlessly upbeat sugar rush. And yes. I know what type of movie, what type of music I prefer. Um, That's fair. And but no, I would definitely revisit this movie and I feel like it's not. It doesn't tap into a lot of De Palma's other um, fetishes, obsessions. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not. It's not a movie that you like. I could even say that, like, if you want to show this to not your really young kids, but if you have kids that are about like ten or eleven. Maybe they might enjoy this movie. I don't know. It might be too 70s for them. Um, but anyway, uh, we got to move on, though, to the one of the big daddies of, uh, of you know, what, what we might call uh, the, quote, erotic thriller. Yeah. And, of course, as, you know, the thrillers, you know, the trailers for some of these movies, they'd be like, from Brian De Palma. Master of the erotic thriller. <laughs> you know, because of course they gotta give him something. I'm 
sorry. I shouldn't have been so rude. Thank you for picking up. Mm. For those who haven't seen it, Dress to Kill, uh, it follows, um, at, well, at first, it, it follows this woman, Kate, played by Angie Dickinson. She seems like a regular housewife, but at the start of the movie, we kind of get a very clear sense that she's, you know, in a pretty loveless marriage. Yeah. Um, you know, basically gets pounded by her man and, you know, very no feeling there. Um, you know, but she has a son who loves her, but kind of obsessed with science and you know she you know she's trying to you know understand herself she goes to a therapist played by michael kane um they have a very interesting scene that sets up a lot yeah. that even though you don't realize it and then like in, in the first half hour a lot happens in this movie yeah and in particular we get a scene where Angie, uh, this character Angie Dickinson plays is in a museum, and Palma builds very slowly uh, the sense of, huh, there's this guy here. Maybe, hmm, I kind of like him. Hmm, I'm going to maybe tap my foot. You know, maybe I know I'm doing, maybe not. And I'm, I'm going to try to follow this guy. Hey, where did he go? And this sequence goes on and on, and... And yet you're wrapped up in it because he's so clever with making details that make the scene very realistic. Like you're just at first watching her looking at other people in the museum. And then suddenly it's, you know, it helps us to establish where we know what this museum is. And so we're following her around and it, and it's like, I almost it didn't did it feel like it, it was a long time like following her around. Um, it didn't feel to me. It didn't feel long in the sense that like it dragged or it was boring, but it felt long in the sense that it felt like an intricate seduction. Yes, that's that's a great way to put it. It's a very intricate seduction. It, it's like you know, there's a glove involved and. You know, did they? Did someone drop the glove? Did they find the glove? And suddenly, you know, eventually, they go outside into the steps, of the museum, and oh, maybe someone else has picked up the glove, and it all builds up to, you know, she's gonna, you know, have a thing with this guy. Yeah. And, and she wants to be seduced. So one thing I said to you when we saw this movie is. I feel like Dress to Kill is very efficient at building a characterization for Kate. Mm -hmm. And I could get a lot about her in a relatively short period of time. In fact, I read a lot into this character that was probably just me projecting and it's probably not even in the movie. 
because in what in what way? Well, because I devised a whole like a backstory for her. Yes, I devised an entire backstory for her where the movie communicates that she's melancholy and because her she's unsatisfied with her marriage. Her kid is pretty much grown, so like active like intense child rearing is kind of over she's melancholy she wants to be desired she's got a hang up about aging i would imagine if you're a very attractive woman aging is hard yeah and you know she has like a little notebook with her where she writes out like buy a turkey <laughs> so it's like she's her one like you know she she kind of distracts herself with kind of the mundane tet chores of, like, the housewife. Well, what when I, I said to you, my projection onto this is her problems are champagne problems. Yes. And I said, obviously, she's pretty attractive even in advancing age. Mm. So, obviously, she would have been a super-duper sexy bombshell in her youth. And I feel like she probably dined out on that her whole life and had all kinds of privileges afforded to her because she's an attractive woman and probably didn't have to work and, you know, landed this man. But now she's feeling this sense of emptiness because she can't just be a sex object anymore. Yeah. And now she realizes she's she's nothing else. If... She's not an object of desire. Um, what else does she have? Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, I didn't really think about a lot of that watching it. I kind of just, I was looking more at the, the sort of technical, you know, prowess of the whole sequence and, and how everything is like unfolding, like with her looking this way and that way and, and the whole act of following and what that. You know the the fact the, the seduction part I think wrapped me up more, but that's that's interesting that you created yeah this character for her. And I that's how I read it. I read it as a woman who's reached middle age and realized um, the one currency I had in life is leaving me. My my role as a as a so, mother. And so you could say that maybe she's chasing that through this museum. Exactly, because. Remember, too, there's that scene where she watches the family with the young kids. So I looked at she wants to be desired mm -hmm. sexually. She wants yeah. to be hot. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely a big driver for yeah. her. But I think more than that, she wants to have purpose and, as well. And the irony is that, you know, she is beautiful. Yeah. Like, she doesn't need to work at it. Like, she's, you know, even in even if she's now middle age, she's... You know, still, you know, wear, she you know, she wears that like beige coat really well. And... She's still a knockout, but yeah. we know society is very cruel to women as they age, and society is very cruel to women in terms of judging them by very unrealistic yeah. standards. Do you think that she, when she asks uh, Michael Caine in that scene, like, um, you know, do you find me attractive? Would you want to sleep yeah. with me? Do you think that she's just asking him rhetorically, or do you think, like, she actually would, like, want to try to sleep with him? I don't think she wants to sleep with him, but I think she wants to be wanted by him. She's curious to know if he would want her. And then, of course, there's that... I don't know if you noticed this, but, like, 
he looks into a mirror. Yeah. And the and the shot changes to focus him on on the mirror. That's but a nice I think touch. she has the affair. Like she yeah. gets seduced, but. It's a dead end because she right after the affair, she's kind of upset with herself and she's she finds go. out <laughs> that he has venereal disease. Yeah, I see. I feel like that's when we get into the first kind of thing that one could say is I don't think this is a problem, but I feel like if I were writing a paper or reading a paper yeah. about this movie, I could see someone saying like, Oh, this is her being punished for, uh, you know, this, what she's done. That, look what you've done, now you're going to VD. Well, I... Okay, I'm not saying yeah, it, but well, I could see someone bringing I, that up. I can see that as a reading, that I don't think the film communicates the message that this was a positive thing for her to do. But I think that... I don't know, when I read it, I didn't just view it as an individual failure of hers. I felt it as also a failure of a society who's told this woman, you only have one type of value, mm -hmm. and that value has an expiration date. Yeah. So again, I feel like I might be projecting a lot onto this film that yeah. it's not there. Yeah, well, um, it, that shows like... I, it, but it shows that his approach in these, uh, when he's doing these films really oh. well, he can allow the audience to bring themselves into it. Yeah. Now, one minor thing, which was very silly, but I found it like an entertaining kind of silly, is he has this really ditzy moment with her when she's trying to get out of the guy's apartment where she suddenly remember she doesn't have her underwear. <laughs> but what's yeah. weird about this is... Yeah, like, there's this moment where we see her in, like, one part of the frame, like, thinking, and then uh. on the other side, it's, like, a brief split screen where he, like, she remember she sees the underwear in her mind and we see it, and it's like, uh. oh, the underwear's not there. Yeah, but they also do this thing where she literally, like, pats her own butt <laughs> to, like, check for underwear like, lights. Like, you so know, well, you know, like, if you're, if you've lost your wallet, you check your <laughs> back pocket, even though you know logically it's not there. <laughs> and I want to know, what human being doesn't know whether they're wearing underwear or not, unless or until they pat their own butt to, yeah. like, check for the underwear light? Yeah. Oh, now, another thing, another minor thing is... When she's leaving this guy's apartment, we kind of see her um, relatively unclothed, like, from the waist down. Basically, we see her butt. Another thing, a kind of minor critique of this movie, the editing in the opening scene is just not okay. It's so... I'm talking, like, the opening scene where... You mean the shower? Yeah, because the cuts between Angie Dickinson's face and the body double... It's so obvious it's a body double. The body double has a totally different complexion than Andy Dickinson. <laughs> like, when we see her partially it's, clothed... It's like when you watch a movie and the <laughs> stunt double is, like, a different race and gender and... Yeah, pretty much. Because we actually see Angie Dickinson for real partially undressed and she's very tan. Yeah. And... 
her whole body's very tan. Whereas the body double has like paler, milkier skin. And I'm sorry, it's very obvious the body double's much younger than. <laughs> so I'm not opposed to the opening scene in concept, but I thought the. Et- I thought the ending between Angie Dickinson's face and the body double's body actually was pretty lazy. It was a little jarring. The only, the only excuse I might give is it might've looked a little bit smoother in the uncut version. I think Mm -hmm. we were watching the R rated version. Uh I'm not totally sure. And that was, he had to make like De Palma famously got in a lot of battles with the MPAA because uh, like when he submitted this movie, it got an X, uh, and he just re- had to resubmit it. And I think he he trimmed he had to trim stuff out of that opening thing and then out of the elevator scene, which you also found choppy. Yeah, so I I didn't like there's after she goes after she leaves this guy, um, she gets she gets chopped up and murdered in an elevator, and I did not like the editing there. Like I thought, I thought it's I thought it starts fine when he when when the killer first comes at her in the elevator. I thought that initial part is fine, but I get what you mean that like the the edits when she's getting sliced up. Yeah, and again, I understand what you're trying to do, La Palma. I understand you've watched Psycho. I get it. But... I would say that this movie is basically a remake of... This is the better remake of Psycho. Like, Gus Van Sant should have seen this movie and said, well, why should I even try? Yeah, this... This is... of the Structurally, it's a remake of Psycho. Like, not altogether. Of all the movies we watched... This is the one. This was the only one I felt like really did feel kind of derivative. But oh, yeah, oh well, I would. Well, I don't know. I feel like there's certainly derivative elements in Raising Cain and certainly Femme Fatale. But but this one is just yeah. He basically saw like Psycho, like and immediately went home and wrote a script and put. A lot of things into it. So, for the elevator kill scene, I said to you when we were watching it, like, I actually wish De Palma was less clever and just, like, planted the camera in front of the elevator and we just I, watched the killer. I think that I get why, uh, because he would he must think that, you know, the audience doesn't expect that that's about to happen. Even though he makes it pretty clear uh, someone is following her in that yeah. hotel. You know, in that hotel. Um... But then we need to get into the like how like in Psycho, our main character we now have a new main character instead yeah. of Janet Lee we have Vera Miles. Now we have Nancy Allen who, unlike Angie Dickinson, um, you know who's you know playing middle aged housewife wondering if she's still attractive. Nancy Allen's playing uh, her her character uh, Liz is a call girl. Yeah, who is very confident. You know, very sure of herself and, you know, and very much like I saw someone getting killed and, you know, and she's put upon by Dennis Franz, her, you know, as a cop, you know, and he says to her, you better find, you know, give me who really did this or you're getting arrested. Yeah. And this is when also um, uh, her kid becomes more of a central character, Peter, who I also call Peter Parker, because <laughs> he's basically like... He's he's basically Spider-Man if he wasn't Spider-Man. He's like a young nerdy science kid. <laughs> and I love Keith Gordon in this. I think he's I, I know you didn't like him so much. 
I think he's one of the things that makes this story unique because, and I think this is also me bringing the way that you were projecting a lot. I'm bringing my knowledge of De Palma's personal life into this that because he talked in, he talked, he's talked a lot about how when he was a kid, he wasn't really into movies. He was a science kid. Like he would be like, he was just obsessed with science and like physics and you know, he had science kits and all that stuff. So that's, he's, that's him in the movie. And there's also this story, which he tells in the, in the Paula documentary that his mother, when he was a kid thought like his, her father, like De Palma's father was cheating on her. And so she asked Brian De Palma to follow around his father and get like, you know, have a camera and try to get proof that, you know, she was that he was cheating, and he did. He followed him around and confronted him when he saw like <laughs> you're with someone that isn't mom, and uh, big drama. And he brings that into this movie, and I, I really, I think that's what separates this from just being like Nancy Allen being chased around by a person in a blonde wig. You're right. It may. It definitely makes them. It's. It's a little bit of particular flavor. I I didn't need him. I I, I don't know because I like their pairing because they're kind of an odd couple. Uh-huh. It's like they shouldn't work together, but they do because they don't. They're not romantically engaged. They're just yeah. This these two people who are working to solve you know this 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 whole conundrum, and and uh, and so again the rest of the movie is you know like I said Nancy Allen's trying to figure out what the hell happened. Uh, who's following her? Uh, you know how can how is Michael Caine's character involved? Mm-hmm. And um, where we get into the movie hasn't aged well because I, I want to say up front I think this movie is very entertaining. I yeah. think the cast across the board is re- really are digging into their roles well. Michael Caine plays this therapist, and you buy him as this guy who seems to really care about his patients and is very professional. And Nancy Allen is just really sweet. And, you know, at the time she was married to De Palma and I feel like he's, you know, she's working really well and Keith Gordon's good and Angie Dickinson. I don't know if Brian De Palma understands very well about what trans means. Yeah, so this movie, as you can imagine, we've mentioned repeatedly, this is basically like a reinterpretation of Psycho. So the supposed, like, female murderer who we've been tracking this whole time is Michael Caine in drag. And in this movie ends, like Psycho, with a psychiatrist expositioning for us. The the mayor from Ghostbusters. I forget (laughs) the actor's name, but he's the... He's the other psychiatrist who knew, who worked with Michael Caine a little bit. And yeah, he gives an exposition dump like you get in Psycho. But the difference is in this movie, it's just like the way that he lays out the explanation. It's like, I know this is 40 years ago. This is so long ago that maybe attitudes were different. But even still, how they describe what was going on inside of Michael Caine and why he, as she, needed well, to kill. Oh, they, my God. They kind of mash up mm-hmm. multiple personality disorder with being trans. So, yes. basically, 
what happened is they treat um, the Michael Caine character as not a trans woman per se, but as someone with dueling personalities. Yeah, and this a is... A female personality and a male yeah. personality. And the funny thing is, this is something that De Palma's done through a number of his movies. I mean, we talked about Sisters, and we're going to yeah. talk about Raising Cain. You could say there's a touch of this in Femme Fatale, but that's it's a bit of a different scenario altogether for a lot of reasons. This is the one where a person's sexuality and gender is really brought into it. And that's where I think that's where it parts from Psycho. Because in Psycho, the other thing, too, is we really get to know Norman Bates pretty well by the time the ending comes. And there's almost this slight element of tragedy at the end of Psycho. Whereas in this, you don't really get to know Michael Caine very well in the movie. He's just doctor guy. And the way they explain it to us is that the male personality does not want to transition into being female. It's it's even more it's even worse than that. It's basically like I'm feeling a boner, I must kill now. Yeah, so basically <laughs> the premise is that every time the male personality is sexually mm-hmm. aroused, the female personality comes out and must kill whoever does yeah. the arousing. So what I said to you at the end, I was like, so is Michael Caine, is he like, he can't masturbate then every time he pops wood? Um, now, I still enjoyed this movie. I was still entertained by this movie. I still liked it a lot. It features a dream fake out at the end too, which I thought was a bit disappointing this time around but it is hashtag problematic it's 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 such a weird movie because that whole element is so problematic especially i feel differently now too than like the first time i saw this movie was like again it was like 10 12 years ago and i don't think i had as much of a problem with it then as i do now that Mm. You know, I've seen other media that treats, you know, trans people as human beings. You know, we just watched two seasons of Pose this summer. Yeah. And, you know, after watching that and coming to this, I'm like, are you kidding? Like, this is why people didn't want to come out as trans for so long, because people thought of Dress to Kill. Well, my optimistic thought is that what I was thinking what, about... What, now we look at Dress to Kill and we can laugh at it? Well, my optimistic thought is I don't think it's automatically bad to have a trans character who's portrayed as bad or even murderous. Oh, no, no. What's a problem is when that's literally the only depictions yeah. in media. Yeah. So... I definitely think it's a problem that for literal decades, the only portrayal of cross-dressing, which is different than being trans or being trans, literally the only portrayals were, oh, by the way, you're also a murderer, but... You're you're Michael Caine or you're Buffalo Bill. Yeah, but what I'm hoping is if people watch this movie now and people watch this movie in the future... This movie will not be the only... Well, the thing that's weird about it, though, like I said, is that is something that you... You know, it's... It's a strange thing in the movie, too, because that scene with the the doctor explaining things happens, and then there's another scene right after it where Nancy Allen and Keith Gordon are at this restaurant, Mm -hmm. and she's explaining to him how 
the surgery works. Yeah. And I feel like De Palma, he has like these other people behind the two actors when he's cutting back and forth yeah. who are reacting to her descriptions of, you know, what they do to, you know, guys, you know, junk and et cetera, and what they do to the surgery. And I think in his mind, he must have thought, well, this will be the way that I'll, you know, I'll show the, the audience. Like, you know, you're being too prudish about this. This isn't that, you know, this is just medical science. We shouldn't judge these people. The people around them listening to this are being too judgmental. But I don't know if that quite worked the way he intended. Yeah, because I, I read that scene as both the old women are prudish and judgmental, Yet the movie is also has a it's message. A, it's, about it's, it. it's exploitation. Yeah, and it's using it's using this like almost like a gimmick to make the desired effect that he wants. Like he can't just have Michael Caine be a uh, killer. He needs to have it that he's you know going nutso and has this gender identity crisis. And he also throws in a red herring that he that Michael Caine is a patient who might be the killer, but I don't, you know, doesn't pan out. The other thing that's complicated about this movie though, is that it is at times very sexy. Like Angie Dickinson is sexy in this movie. Nancy Allen is sexy. Like there is real sex erotic appeal to this movie. And so it's like, it's the kind of movie where I'd say like, yeah, I recommend it, but know what you're getting into. Yeah. I like this movie a lot. I like exploitation films. I would say if you're someone who is not really into um, dated portrayals of people with marginalized identities, do <laughs> you, not you, watch this you, movie. You mean, you mean like the scene where you literally have Phil Donahue interviewing a trans person on a TV show within the movie? However, <laughs> so I am... I am optimistic about the fact that I feel like movies like this, um, if they're viewed in an environment where this is not literally the only way pop culture oh, addresses trans issues. Oh, sure, issues, sure, absolutely. I feel like that diffuses. No, no, it, it, it does a little bit. Yeah, like, in a way, this might have been more offensive before we had Pose. Or, I don't know, maybe it's more offensive now that we have Pose. Well, it's, I don't know. I feel, I feel a little mixed about it. I, and I don't know if I'm really qualified necessarily to talk about I that. I feel like it's more offensive but less damaging. So my okay. attitude is, I feel like if someone made this movie now, um, it oh. would be more offensive given how much understanding about this issue has evolved in the like, past 40 years. Yeah, well... I think that also now, unlike in 1980, I think that there would be like more of an outcry. And oh, here's the here's an, one more ironic part before we go on to the next movie. Did you know that Brian De Palma was originally going to make Cruising? No, but uh, yeah, uh, he was originally attached to make Cruising. Wow, he seems very much like a Cruising kind of guy. Oh yeah. I, well, no, but I, but it's funny that he was going to make Cruising and instead he made this. <laughs> so, so, anyway. I, so, yeah, that's what I feel like. I feel like on the one hand, it would be treated as more offensive, given what we know now. Yeah. Now, but on the other hand, it would be coming out in an environment 
where the culture is more capable of wrestling with. Yeah, I think actually that did you watch that documentary Disclosure? Yes, I watched. That. Yeah, they brought up Dress to Kill a little bit in that. I don't know if you remember that. I do. Okay, so that's why too. Like, if you watch that documentary Disclosure, they talk about this with probably more insight than you and I can. Bring yes, Disclosure is about kind of the history of trans representation, representation in or film. lack thereof in, in film. Yeah, but. I still like this movie a lot. I had some nitpicks that I didn't like the editing in a few scenes. And I I actually maybe would have liked, instead of the Keith Gordon character, maybe more scenes of the Michael Caine character in action as a therapist. Because you said we don't learn as much about him as we learn about, say, Norman Bates. Hmm. No, but, but what I mean, though, is that when we learn about Norman Bates because he spends time, more time with the main character and, like, actually opens up. Like, in the one scene that Michael yeah. Caine has with Angie Dickinson, it's more about her. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I would have been interested in maybe more scenes of interaction between him and other women. I get that. I get that. So, but one of your letterbox friends called Dress to Kill a problematic fave, and that's kind of how I would feel about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, now, let me go on to a fave that is that I, I could see maybe someone still having a problem with it, but I don't care because I think this is a masterpiece of sleaze. Body Double. Oh my god, this movie, I love this movie so much. This this, this <laughs> might be this might be the favorite of all the movies that we're talking about today. This is what started our trip down. Yeah. Well, what happened was I think I just wanted frankly to show you Body Double. I forget why. Like I think it was just on my mind from Oh, I know why cuz I re I listened to uh I was re-listening to this podcast called 80s All Over and you know, they they talk. They were talk, trying to talk about as many '80s movies as they could over the course of their run. And when they got to 1984 and Body Double, I was like, "Oh yeah, Body Double." And and I hadn't seen it in like, this was another one I hadn't seen like 12 or 13 years. And I remember loving it when I watched it. And you I, knew this was a me movie. I had a pretty good idea that you might dig it. Um, I wasn't quite sure if you would like the lead, who himself is kind of a body double. <laughs> For those who watch the movie, actually, you know, you can stop listening to this right now or while you're listening to it. Just Google the name Craig Wasson, body double 1984 or whatever. This actor, Craig Wasson, is basically Bill Maher. <laughs> Imagine Bill Maher is the lead of an erotic thriller. Like, it's just like... No, that does not compute. He would, like, be too much of a bullshit artist. But, um... This movie blew me away. Yeah. Every now this, single second of it is amazing. And this is him, once again, you know, he's dipping into Hitchcock, to, you know, the, the pool. Um, not psycho so much as... Um, it's like, I called it in my review, it's kind of like a... It's like if you had a Vertigo ice cream sundae and the the syrup on top was rear window. Mm-hmm. And with that, I mean that in this movie, Craig Watson, he plays this guy, Jake Scully. He's trying to be an actor. He's 
Yeah, he's cast in this like low budget horror movie and he's playing a vampire, but because he has claustrophobia, being in the casket makes him like freeze on set and you know he, he can't act. And he tries to open up in this acting class and this guy is there, played by Greg Henry. Um, he plays Sam. And Greg Henry, he pops up in a lot of De Palma movies. He's one of those actors that direct that director just latches on to and awesome. uses over and over again. For you Gilmore Girls fans. That's him, right? Yeah. Um, for you Gilmore Girls fans, he plays Mitch Hunsberger on the Gilmore Girls. All right, carry okay. on. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to let the I'll, I'll, I'll take your word for it. Yeah, and then so this guy is in this act, also supposedly in this acting class, um, sees Jake Scully trying to act and freeze up, and you know he, he strikes a you know he strikes a conversation with him afterwards at a bar, and then he invites him back to this place that he his friend has left. He's kind of supposed to be house sitting, mm-hmm. and it's this gorgeous apartment overlooking like a you know overlooking Hollywood and specifically Sam has set up a basically like a would you call it like a telescope? Yeah. Uh, he has basically like a, 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 a view into this other apartment that's like a couple of miles away and has every night this woman dances kind of to by herself in this like apartment and of course jake scully being you know white cis hero man is like holy cow and yeah kind of gets obsessed with looking at her and one day sees her walking in this like outdoor mall and you get pretty much the longest following scene in the history of cinema it's amazing it's like de palma looked at what he did in dress to kill and thought you know my character didn't follow around another character long enough. I'm going to make it double that. Oh, it's so good, though. And the scene, it's so full of tension and danger, but also yeah. longing. Yeah, because and- there's also another character that is following the woman, uh, and she's played by uh, Deborah Shelton. And where it leads up to is really glorious. And it's this, there's this overblown moment when... Jake finally, you know, goes up to her, and it's like the camera spins around them while they're kissing. <laughs> while and they improbably make out. <laughs> it, like I said, there's... De Palma walks this tightrope between being a serious film artist uh. and becoming, like, the naked gun version of himself. <laughs> like... It can very easily happen that Craig Wasson becomes like Leslie Nielsen in this movie <laughs> and just starts saying dialogue that you know is so preposterous that you have to laugh. But he is, but it ultimately is like, you know, more uh, serious rock filler. Um, but then, uh, like, not quite unlike Dress to Kill, something happens midway through that changes everything. Oh, yeah, where we're talking about a woman who gets murdered by a giant super phallic drill that is literally positioned between the man's legs. Probably the best moment of that De Palma documentary. Like, you know, that comes up because they obviously have to talk about body double and they show a clip of it and De Palma, his voice, you hear his voice say like, you know, a lot of critics ask me like, 
Well, why, why, you know, why is the, why is that she have to get, why is she killed by such a large power drill? And he's like, well, the power drill had to be so big so it could go through the floor. Yeah. <laughs> Who do you think you're fooling, buddy? Don't kid a kidder. And the drill was positioned between the man's legs. Oh, the other. Because that was ergonomically. Oh, the other thing that's notable with this movie, so. Another thing that happens like half what like in the second half of the movie is uh, porn becomes a big deal. Yes. Because um, Melanie Griffith, she's in the movie, but you don't really get introduced to her until halfway through. It's like uh, Jake after his, you know, my the woman of my dreams has been killed. He's like watching TV late at night, comes across his porn channel and sees Melanie Griffith is doing the exact same dance as this woman did and he like sits up and is like oh my god and then tries to track her down and Melly Griffith plays Holly Body <laughs> and you know, she's she's so wonderful in this movie she's like she's has like perfect comic timing and knows just how to play off of you know Bill Maher and um and but what I heard though about in this movie is that originally De Palma wanted to cast an actual porn star. Yeah. But like the studio was like, no, we are going, we're letting you do a lot, Brian De Palma, but we have to put our foot down at this. You cannot have a porn star as like the co lead of your movie. And. You know, of course, then after the movie came out, everybody just talked about Melanie Griffith. Well, I was going to say, I've seen Sasha Gray act in Melanie <laughs> so they probably ah! made the right choice. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, the thing about this movie is that it's just the... This is going to sound pretentious, but it's almost like the style is the substance of the movie. Yeah. It's like, even though, like, you know, like, he's doing all of these tricks, he's... You know, again, following around, he you know, he has this character following around this woman for an absurdly long amount of time, and you know how you know what happens when he sees that she's in danger, and how he tries to you know save her, and everything that happens with that. It's like he he knows how ridiculous this all is, and that's what makes it so enjoyable. Like you're caught up in his enjoyment of what he's tr- pulling off. It's like watching, like, a guy pulling off an obscene magic trick. <laughs> like, he's pulling out, like, dicks from a magic hat. <laughs> and this is the kind of sleaze you can just totally revel in. It's, it's 110% enjoyable. Like, Dress to Kill is a good movie, but it gives you that, like, little bit of a bitter aftertaste. This one, you can just go hog wild. I mean, with. I know that, like, the other thing that De Palma got charged with back in the day was, you know, against violence against women. It's like, why did women have to be the ones who are killed in his movies and, you know, so graphically? And Uh what are you trying to say with that giant drill? You know, and not not only that, it's it's being done by a guy who you know, looks like Frankenstein's monster. Because, <laughs> like, the, the guy who's supposed to be the bad guy who or who we think has very obvious makeup. Yeah. Like, that's the other thing. Not Maybe not unlike Fam of the Paradise, this movie feels like it's taking the piss out of horror movies, um, which Blowout did a little bit to an extent. Um, but it's just, it's also so very 80s. Oh, gorgeous! And, and we gotta briefly t- touch on 
um, uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood and how, yes. like, when we talk about how the style is the substance and the, the, oh, the how much of a joke some of this seems like, there's a part in this movie where um, Craig Watson goes and, try, and, you know, into the world of porn. And when he goes into this, like, big, like, mansion or whatever, a music video happens to the song Relax. And it's just so funny. It blew my mind. You know, one thing that I'm thinking of hearing you talk is I feel like at his best, De Palma really excels at having his cake and eating it too. Mm -hmm. Both delivering us the trash that we want, but also commenting on the trash. Yes. And I feel like this movie does an excellent job of that because it gives you like really pulpy joy mm -hmm. and I just love like just basking in the style yeah. but the movie also if the lead character wasn't a perv in the first place yeah none of this would have happened no that's a good point like if he well it's well you you could say that this guy that the the Greg Henry character is setting him up yeah. that he knows that his like this guy can't help himself but look and but of course the idea is well could any of us help to look you know even yeah. us women would we like be powerless to not look at this woman like dancing you know erotically in her like lingerie yeah um so it criticizes these appetites but let's just fully indulge in them at the same time while we're listening to you know, extremely charged, you know, erotic 80s music by Pino Donaggio. <laughs> I sometimes get that music in my head from when, you know, uh, she's like dancing and we're looking at her across the way. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> well, even when we were watching this movie and I didn't know the ending and I didn't know all the twists, I said to you I'd, at the beginning... I've actually forgotten the twist, too. I so that made it really exciting I said to you at the very me. beginning, this woman is obviously dancing for an audience. No woman just dances around like that in her apartment for oh, herself. Oh, come on. You never dance like that. <laughs> I do it right after I check for underwear lines to make sure I still have my underwear on. Yeah, so... And also, oh, the other thing, too, that I feel like he's commenting on is also just the fa the idea of performance. Yeah. And, you know, it's not an accent that this character's an actor. Yeah. You know, just like how... You know, kind of connecting to Blowout. There, you know, it's not an accent that that guy works as a sound man and is, you know, trying to construct a film out of this accident and, you know, become a filmmaker through, you know, the, you know, through conspiracy theory. Um, and this was one of the of the movies we watched. Even though when you say this movie, the style is the substance. This was also. Um, one of the movie, one of the movies that we watched, where I found it was almost Scorsese esque in the way that hmm. it could both like revel in excess, but also critique that excess. Well, well, the other, well, you could also, well, talking about well, critique being a genre piece while critiquing it. I mean, the, the biggest De Palma fan on the planet is Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, like he he said that like growing up, he was like his idol. And I feel like you see some of that in his work, where yeah. Tarantino throughout his career has done, you know, big pulpy spectacles, and yet when you know when he remembers it, he tries to critique like what we're watching. 
Yeah, I feel like I have more to say about a movie when I have things to criticize, but I have nothing to criticize about Body Double. I just think this movie is absolutely spectacular. Yeah. Oh, everything. This is a perfect film. This is an absolutely perfect (laughs) film. I don't know if I'd quite call it perfect. I, I still think that... They're like Craig Watson is good in the movie. Don't get me wrong. Like he works for what he's supposed to do. Uh. I do think there could have been someone else cast that might have been a little more memorable. Like, because I I actually forgot. Like I forgot his name until I looked it up again. <laughs> like he's not like he was someone who had like kind of fifteen minutes of fame in Hollywood. Like he got cast in a few movies and he's been in stuff over the years. And I think even. I think he even has, like, a small part in Malcolm X, of all things. Well, but, you know, he's, like, Melanie Griffith, I think, kind of steals, like, any like all the scenes. Well, he's he a boy him. trying to define himself through consumption. Hmm, okay. <laughs> but you still could have had a more memorable void. <laughs> um... <laughs> I will defend this movie like it is my own child. Oh, I think oh, don't get me wrong. Favorite. I, 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 I oh, we didn't even touch on like the use of colors being so yeah. vivid and yeah, like if you like your, if you just like eighties and sleaze and oh, the one last detail that I love and I, I point this out to you, not in the film but in the book of American Psycho. Um, Patrick Bateman is obsessed with this movie to the point where he he mentions that he's taken the video out from the store like 37 times to the point where the tape is like almost like becoming unwatchable. (laughs) So you have something in common with Patrick Bateman. Awesome. Alright, so we should move on though to our next movie because this one, not quite as perfect as Body Double, but also dealing with this idea of doubles, which is uh, Raising Cain. Do you realize that no one really knows anything about personality development? Everything up to now has been pure conjecture. All we psychiatrists do is, is chase cows after the barn door has been open. Here for the first time, we'll have an opportunity to observe what happens, when it happens, and precisely monitor the psychological consequences. Well, not with my kid, you know. Oh! Oh, are you oh, all right? God, Hang on, eye. I got the wheel. I'm so sorry, Karen. Are, are you all right? I've got something in my eye. Oh, here. Oh, it hurts. Let me have a look. Uh, uh, look up. Now, now, look down. It's just the tiniest bit of dirt. Oh, it hurts. Here, just keep your eyes closed. I'll, I'll get you a, uh, I'll get a, a tissue. Are the kids okay? Don't move. They're fine. They're fine. They're fine. I'm so sorry. What's that smell? I'm so I'm sorry. This movie is interesting just in looking at his career in that he made this right after Bonfire of the Vanities. And I feel like this movie is a reaction to that in a lot of ways. And also, I think he hadn't made this kind of movie since Body Double. Like, he decided, okay, you know, I've been making some of these big prestige movies. Like, I made The Untouchables. I made Casualties of War. I've now fallen flat on my face adapting this great book. 
let me go back to what I'm good at. And like Raising Cain, uh, for those who haven't seen it, it's uh, it, like John Lithgow is uh, like a guy is playing a guy who like when we first see him, he's like supposedly like trying to work as like a child psychologist and behavior therapist or something. And mm. and yet he's also like like kidnapping kids and like killing women. <laughs> Yes. And so it immediately establishes, oh, uh, yeah, this guy's a bit off. Uh, but then he also is married and has a kid, and um, his wife uh, meets a guy, and she has kind of an affair with him. And we soon come to realize, though, this guy, John Lithgow, he's playing um, Carter Nix. He is uh, not quite what he appears to be in a lot of ways. No, he's not. Yeah, and... he, he's suffering from he's suffering from multiple personality disorder in a way that is more like what you would see in the movie Split. Yeah. If anybody has seen that movie with James McAvoy. Um, he is John Lithgow is basically having like ten lunches with this movie. <laughs> he like and he he worked with De Palma a few times. He he was in Obsession, he was in Blowout. And I feel like this is De Palma giving him, like, a gift. Like, he probably gave him this script in, like, you know, a, a package with a bow. And said, like, have fun, man. And he's, like, the best part of this movie. Yeah, and he also um, plays his own father. Yeah, yeah, that's the other thing. Is like, there's this whole mystery around Carter's dad, who might have also committed, like, certain crimes in his home country. Um, like, the, there's also a really fun scene in this movie midway through where there's this other, like, woman doctor who's explaining the plot. Mm. Actually, Greg Henry, like, she's explaining it to him. That's um, Frances Sternhagen's the actress. Oh, thank you. She was in Misery. She also played Carter's mom on ER. She played oh. Trey McDougal's mom on Sex in the City. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's really cool. Thanks. Um... Yeah, like, she's one of those people, she looks yeah. familiar. Like, there's a almost four-minute-long tracking shot where, like, I feel like De Palma tried to solve this problem that a lot of filmmakers have where, you know, characters have to explain stuff about another mm -hmm. character's, like, ailments. Yeah. And she gives, like, an epic exposition dump. Like, she explains what's going on with Carter and the father and all this stuff. And we're following them through this giant station, yeah. going down this staircase. The camera goes into like, like a like a tilted angle, and they go down to the basement, and then revealing who is supposed to be like we think this dead is this dead body, and it's really the woman from the beginning of the movie. Yeah, and I feel like that is almost like the virtuoso sequence of this movie. Um, without calling, you don't think it's calling too much attention to itself until you realize how long the shot's going on. It's a very good set piece. And I I liked this movie a lot. I thought it was really effective. My only criticism, and you can explain to the people why this is my criticism, it's it's choppily edited in the beginning. Now, when I say choppily edited, I don't mean necessarily within a scene. Like, I don't think the editing is a problem within each scene, but the transitions from scene to scene are very bad in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Tell the people why that is. Well, um, 
it's an interesting situation because, um, uh, like, De Palma made this movie that wasn't, like, that expensive, and he had Final Cut on it, but when he he put the movie together, he thought that he didn't have, like, the, the scenes with John Lithgow were so powerful that he wanted to shuffle them like move some of the scenes of John Lithgow that were originally supposed to be in the middle of the movie to the start of the movie so that we could get a sense of, okay, here's who this guy is. He means trouble. Now we'll go on into the wife. Like originally the movie started off and it was more of the wife's movie. Um, and then eventually John Lithgow's reveal, like Carter's revealed to be this crazy person. Um, but I think because he moved it that way, it it does change the kind of flavor of the movie. Like, we're... And we kind of forget about, you know, and we kind of wonder, what did he do with the body of this woman that he yes. killed? So in the first scene of the movie, John Lithgow kills one of his wife's friends. And then... What we see is we see the moment of killing, but we don't see the immediate aftermath. We don't yeah. see what he does with the body. And then we cut back to yeah, the wife, and we're just left hanging like, okay, what has he done with this woman's body? And Well, I mean, I wasn't thinking about that so much because I figured he must have disposed of her some way. But we do leave him for a long stretch of the movie, and it feels like... It started off as his movie. Suddenly, it's Lolita Davidovich's movie, and she meets uh, Stephen Bauer, and that he's the one that they have. That they have a brief fling, um, but yeah, it, it kind of throws the movie off its axis. Now, I didn't have the the Blu-ray of the movie. We watched it on Netflix. Netflix. The Netflix is the theatrical cut. There is another version which re-sorts the movie to how it was scripted so that it starts with her and then it's, it unfolds as it originally was. It's a, But it's not a case where it's like, oh, this is the director's cut. This is... He just... He did it himself. Yeah. So he... No one's to blame but him. I'd like to watch the Blu-ray because it's a bit jarring to have the John Lithgow character kill someone in the opening scene and then cut to a 20-minute sidebar with the wife that in no way addresses what we've seen in the opening scene. Mm -hmm. And the wife has no understanding of her husband's true nature at this point. And it's just weird. And I wish she hadn't made that editing choice because once I get past that initial kind of jar factor of the bad like scene to scene transition i think this movie's dynamite i think it's very yeah it's a lot of fun i actually liked it a little bit more than when i first saw it i forget why i i don't know if i was as impressed by it when i first saw it years ago because i just i don't know I, I thought john lithgow was playing it too big and i just uh i didn't think that there was much there as far as the relationship between him and the the wife and what and what she has going on in the movie. Um, but this time, I think that because I have, because I've seen Split, yeah. and I've seen how this story can be done and not work as well, and be kind of stupid, this is the kind of stupid I enjoy. Yeah, I've learned... It's, it's not like, again, this is not a deep movie at all. This is like, 
This is closer, I think. This is probably the closest of his movies to me that feels like a Lifetime movie. Yeah. Like, this feels like his stock by my doctor. Yeah, this is basically a Lifetime movie with production values. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're if you're listening, Mom, check, check this one out. <laughs> yeah, and... Yeah, and it ends with this very big sequence that you would expect from De Palma in this motel. As you can imagine, he's cutting between personalities really fast. Somebody on my letterbox said De Palma's second best use of a baby carriage. (laughs) (laughs) Which which for you Untouchable fans will mean something. Um, Yeah, I have not seen the movie The Untouchables, but I have seen the scene where he recreates the Battleship Potemkin. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen the original Battleship Potemkin. You know what's funny about that sequence I learned? He basically did that sequence because, like, David Mamet was the writer on The Untouchables, Mm. but I guess they were having problems during production, and they originally wrote, like, a different sequence, Mm. and they were, like, I forget what happened, but they couldn't do it, and De Palma tried to ask David Mamet to write something else, and he was like, no, I'm done. I'm not writing anything else for this (laughs) movie. And then, so De Palma had to create, he created that whole staircase sequence from scratch himself (laughs) and so yeah like if that scene doesn't feel very mammoth-esque that's probably why (laughs) um but yeah again raising cane is a lot of fun if you again if you love john lithgow you you kind of have to see this movie he goes to town yeah and he's he's getting to play a lot of different types of of characters again like he's because he you know this guy carter nix is you know, at first he seems like, I'm, I'm a nice guy. I'm, I'm John Lithgow. But then he appears as, like, a guy who's wearing sunglasses and is smoking a cigarette all the time because that way we know he's bad. <laughs> this movie also uses that forced perspective a lot. And it helps that John Lithgow's also very tall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he's, there's also when he's playing the father, like, he's shooting up at John, at John Lithgow. And, yeah, it's, it's, very that's where it felt a lot more like Orson Welles and Hitchcock in this movie where like the rooms are like caverns at times <laughs> well you know what i was thinking just oh now? and also the very yeah. last shot of the movie the very end of the movie yeah. is delicious you know what i was thinking just now i was saying that when we started this that a lot of De Palma's movies like Tarantino's movies are obviously made by someone whose life revolves around movies. Like, I feel like De Palma's life on a personal level is dominated by the pop culture he's consumed. And one thing I was thinking is that he has all these movies about multiple personalities, and they're all highly entertaining and not even remotely psychologically plausible. Yeah. And I think the reason for that is De Palma is filtering multiple personalities through pop culture. So he's mm. not engaging with actual research on this condition in actual people. He's he his movies address how pop culture addresses multiple personality disorder. So I feel like he's riffing on how we as a culture process this concept, not the actual concept itself. Well, in the case of Raising Cain, I I watched an interview with him, and he said that 
like he had a friend who was a child, a child psychologist and uh. what we're doing and was, I think, trying to do tests about, you know, how do children respond to, you know, this or that and trauma and stuff like that. And I think in his head, he then bounced off that into what this movie became. <laughs> so he starts from a very basic place and then. You know. But yeah, I think that's what makes them so melodramatic and heightened is that he's not telling a story about multiple personalities. He's telling a story about the stories we tell about multiple yeah. personalities. And, I th and I'm thinking that's what I think really unites his treatment of this concept in Sisters, in Dress to Kill, in Raising Cain is... He's telling a story about the stories we tell. Wow. There we go. And Thank you, Sarah Polly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I really like these movies. I would classify them all in more like the exploitation movie camp, only because there's that level of like artificiality. Yeah. But I like it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And now let's get into, we have two more movies to talk about here. Okay. Um, we have, and then cut to 1998, and you know, unlike Bonfire of the Vanities, he's just made Mission Impossible, which is his biggest hit. And at the time, then he makes, then he decides, all right, I want to make another one of my thrillers, and but this time I want to bring in some conspiracy stuff back into it, you know, government, you know, doing some crazy stuff. But I'm going to bring in my camera tricks, and this time. Ooh, this guy Nicolas Cage just won an Oscar. Let me nab him. <laughs> Do you know who you reminded me of out there? Sonny Liston! Remember in 65, they said, hey, Sonny, don't take any chances. Ali almost killed you the first time. Take the payday. First punch, you go down. Flop! <laughs> Splat! That's you! Detective, That's you. you either arrest him or I'm gonna ask you to leave. What would I arrest him for? What would I arrest you for? Getting up too quick? <laughs> what? What? Come on, I saw you and you saw me. And don't pretend like you don't know who I am, girly man. You want to look like a knockout, but when you heard the gunshot, your eyes were open in half a second. Now you fall, totally understandable reaction, but it kind of ruined the performance, don't you think? Look, what the hell do you want from me? The man knocked me out. I looked at the fight tape, Lincoln. Yeah, it was a phantom punch. A little bad Hollywood acting, but the Athletic Commission might find it interesting. And a second after you go down, an assassin fires. Well, that's some coincidence. I guess they don't call you the executioner for nothing. And you signed my kid's autograph! We get this story, Snake Eyes. Nicholas Cage is playing this, like, cop named Rick Santoro. Who... sounds... Oh, at first, you thought it Rick Santorum. Yeah, when we started watching this movie, <laughs> I turned to you and I said, is this guy named Rick Santorum? And... Yeah, then you went from there, like, holy cow. No, 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 it's not the same person. Um, but yeah, he... Um, in, in like what is clearly like very much like I'm gonna just do this opening shot because I can this shot which lasts like 10 minutes takes us with Rick Santoro as he's going through uh, parts of this casino and you know into like some of the lower depths on the night of this boxing match in Atlantic City and we immediately get this like we understand him right off the bat like he and DePaul and Nicolas Cage get us into this character, and he's like a very slimy, corrupt cop who we get the sense we're gonna have fun watching this guy yeah. because he, like, at one point, like at the start of it, he 
like shakes down Luis Guzman for like money and there's like blood on the money but he gives like he tries to give the bloody money to people that he owes like gambling debts to and it all leads up to him going into this boxing arena and he you know then we see that he has a friend played by Gary Sinise who's more of this you know, typical military guy but as this boxing match happens suddenly the camera we finally get an edit and we see that he's looking at something as he's just like had a phone call that something's happened and the secretary of defense who happens to be there for this boxing match has just been shot <laughs> uh-oh who shot him well there are fifteen thousand witnesses uh we should try to keep them all here um but uh this uh what was interesting for me watching this movie again is at the time i i actually saw this in the theater opening weekend um and at the time i had only seen mission impossible as first of all movies and it felt consistent with that movie because it felt like okay shadowy government conspiracy thing guys trying to figure it out maybe there is a twist somebody it was revealed to not be who they said they were. Um, but this time watching it, I was coming up from having seen Blowout and it felt like a, from the director of that too. And I, I, I think what charges this movie is not just the filmmaking, but that you have Nicolas Cage being very Nicolas Cage, but he's not like so over the top that you can't, believe what he's doing he's just playing a very charged energetic guy yeah when we were watching this you said man it feels weird to watch a movie from when Nicolas Cage was a star <laughs> because now you yeah. know he's a joke and he has been nothing but a joke for a long time which is sad if he but... pops up in something nine times out of ten he's either slumming it and phoning it in or he's intentionally being bad. And then maybe once in a while you get, like, a Mandy, where it's just very, you know, out, out of the box. But, yeah, this was when, you know, again, he's coming off of his Oscar. You know, this is him, Con Air, face-off Nicolas Cage. And, yeah, I feel like to finally, like, there's times where he'll come in and into a, into a scene and, you know, it's because, you know, there is a lot of intensity. I mean, somebody's just been shot... He's now suddenly realizing, hey, this is my moment. I can solve this crime if I really put my mind to it. And and yet, I feel like he's giving a real performance. Like, yeah, because there comes a point where spoilers. It's but it's not really you. You figure it out pretty quickly because the movie tells you. Gary Sinise is the one who's really been orchestrating this. He was the turkey all along. Yeah, he's the turkey all along. Uh, when he finds this out. He's, like, really hurt. Yeah. And he, like, he actually feels like, oh, man, you're the one I looked up to. And, um, and again, I like this movie. I do, I think the main problem, though, is that the, you know, it, it, me, it wants us to take seriously the conceit at the, uh, at, that kicks this off. That, like, you know, like, again, taking from Hitchcock, there's, like, a MacGuffin mumbo-jumbo involving, like, a nuclear defense system or something mm. and why you would need to off the 
defense secretary to get this contract. It just, it didn't make sense. What's funny is for a movie that's all about assassins and the evils of the military industrial complex, if anything, I thought this movie was too optimistic and naive about how this would actually work because in this universe, there are actually people in power who are morally opposed to spending billions of dollars on military boondoggles, when in reality, projects like this are funded year after year and nobody backs an eyelash. Yeah, well, I think part, well, I think part of it is that, you know, De Palma is also like a 70s filmmaker. And what worked in Blowout, because that was a lot more clearly about, you know, uh. Kennedy, not just JFK, but also Ted Kennedy, um, you know, that doesn't quite work as well when you're dealing with these bigger stuff, you know, when you're dealing with, oh, we have a defense system thing. Like, yeah, this it feels like it's it feels like that's thrown in there because he and his screenwriter need to have something. You need some kind of reason. But this idea that you would need to set that you would need to assassinate the secretary of defense to protect a particular defense contract. It's ridiculous. It's just silly. Yeah. Um, but don't take that as a critique of the movie because if you can accept the brainlessness of the conspiracy, this movie's super fun to watch. Oh, it is a lot of fun to watch. I mean, you know, again, he he gets to play with the idea of like what the act the art the act of watching people as part of cinema and the fact that Nicolas Cage has all these surveillance cameras yeah. and you know, he, he gets to see the casino floor and uh, Carl Gugino is in the movie and she's a character who, you know, may have seen something and, you know, both for various, for different reasons, Nicolas Cage and Gary Sinise need to try to find her. Um, that sequence is extremely well mounted and that has a lot of suspense. Yeah, the chasing of her is really good. The opening tracking shot is good. Also, there's a scene where... We peer into multiple hotel rooms. Yeah, and we get to see different types of the Atlantic City experience. Yes, and, and it's, it's a lot, he gets to have fun with that. Which, for the for those of you who have seen it, Spielberg ripped off De Palma for Minority Report. There's a sequence that is just wow. You saw Snake Eyes and couldn't help yourself, man. So yeah, I I loved that like overhead tracking shot of all the hotel yes. rooms. I love the opening shot. Yeah. And even though when I was watching Snake Eyes, it didn't seem like it had the preoccupations of a lot of the other De Palma films, you have the connection to voyeurism. Yeah. And I think De Palma, above everything else, is obsessed with the act of watching and being watched. So you get a little bit of that in this. And again, this movie's a tight 90 minutes. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It goes by very quickly. Um, another cr minor criticism I have, though, and I think we both kind of shared this, Gary Sinise is, he's fine in the movie. Like, don't get me wrong. He does what he's asked to do with this character. But I think that Maybe part of the problem is because I, I knew that what what Turney was going to make, but I feel like if you had an actor who looked a little bit more wholesome, or you know, we talked about Michael Caine as yeah. as the therapist and dressed to kill, he was like the much better version of what 
DePaul tried again with Gary Sinise, and I feel like you needed someone else in that role. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Oh, in- do you know who would have been great? Who? I mentioned, because when we were watching, I said Bill Paxton, but imagine, like, Jeff Bridges. Yes. Which, I mean, eventually that was him in Iron Man, but you know what I mean. So, yeah, like, I had a little criticism of that. Like you, I saw this movie when it came out in the theater, but I had not seen it again since 1998. And beyond the idea that there was an opening scene at a fight where someone got shot, I remembered nothing else from the movie. Yet I can just tell from watching it, like, this Gary Sinise character is obviously shady. Yeah, yeah, there's not a lot of uh, suspense to that reveal, which, you know, is not a major detriment, but... It also then, it doesn't make their emotional connection work as well, because those two characters are the emotional core of the movie. Yeah, so we're supposed to feel this sense of personal betrayal on the part of the Nicolas Cage character, but since the Nicolas Cage character is also a kind of shady, corrupt cop, I didn't feel like they had anything more than a transactional relationship. Like, I never bought that they had... Well, I get that they were supposed to be... They were, like, old friends. But, like, it seemed like... Rick Santoro was very happy being where he was. Like, he wasn't aspiring to really be the, like, character. Oh, one other funny thing with this movie. Um, Gary Sinise plays a character named Kevin Dunn. And there is an actor in this movie named Kevin Dunn, <laughs> which made things a little bit confusing when they were making the movie. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. I also say when we were watching this, Uncut Gems had some Snake Eyes energy to it. Um. Well, yeah. Well, with this character. Yeah. Like I, I, th- I don't. I guess Uncut Gems is a slightly better movie than this, but like. They're, I mean, they're trying to be different things. Well, I would say the Nicolas Cage character is kind of similar to the Adam Sandler character in... This is a lot... Snake Eyes is a lot less anxiety. Uh, yeah, Uncut the- Gems is just turning the anxiety dial up to 100. Uncut Gems is this equivalent of someone shaking you and being like, Ah! <laughs> But I definitely thought this movie had some Uncut Gems energy, or Snake Eye, or I should say Uncut Gems, Snake Eye's energy. So, Um, highly entertaining. Um, The ending peters out a little bit. Yeah. Um, I didn't, I thought the last scene was a bit of a, meh. Yeah, like, like, it's fun kind of right before that, because... Rick Santoro ends up becoming kind of like a hero briefly in Atlantic City, but then immediately it unravels as he's, you know, a corrupt cop. Yeah. So that's kind of fun to see in like a TV montage that happens. But yeah, the very last scene is like, eh. Um, But yeah, it's an entertaining, like, as an exercise in style, I, I think this movie, it didn't really do well at the box office, and I don't think people remember it that well today. But I think it's really worth checking out. Like, I yeah. think it's a fun, it's a fun reminder of what Nicolas Cage was in his heyday. You know, you know, in his heyday, even though he looked already pretty rough for thirty-five. Yeah, I was gonna say when we watched it, it's not that he's unattractive or anything, but he definitely looked older than thirty-five. And I think he was even like younger than thirty-five when he acted in the movie too. I mean. You're older than that, and you look much younger. Thank you. And... Yeah. And now that we end on 
a movie that I think we're going to be a little bit divisive about. Battle, we, yes, we are going to battle royale in the cutest, huggiest way possible uh, um, for Femme Fatale, because you liked this movie and I did not. From director Brian De Palma, master of the erotic thriller, comes a new suspense sensation. This top supermodel is wearing more than you'd think. Ten million in diamonds. This isn't a game tonight. People can die. Remember, no names and no guns. Go. The witch double-crossed us. She ran away with the diamonds. A little under four million. Not bad for a night's work, huh? Where are the diamonds? Yeah, now this is the one that uh, he wanted to try to do one more kind of come back to his style because he did Mission to Mars and that really didn't work out. And that's probably his worst movie, frankly. Um, but Femme Fatale, it stars Rebecca Romaine and uh, she plays Laura, also another character named Lily, which we'll get to. And at the start of the movie, De Palma once again does this kind of bravura opening sequence mm. you know basically like him trying to do like set like the ultimate set piece and in, in terms of commenting on cinema it takes place at the Cannes Film Festival yeah. and involves um Rebecca Romaine is working with this crew of a couple of thieves and they want to try to steal this diamond dress that this actress is wearing and so they set up this uh, elaborate Thing where she kind of seduces this woman into the bathroom and um, you see her try to get the dress off and it's all scored to this rendition I think of this did you I don't know if you recognize the music no it's supposed to be this famous classical modern song uh, it's like a bolero uh, type of number really it draws you in like I feel like right away like he's just pouring on the style like syrup and and it's a really intricate heist sequence that that kind of unfolds and uh it's, it's very much like i just want to see two models like make out in a bathroom yeah. there's part of that kind of energy to it but then of course a double cross happens uh and we find that rebecca romaine is trying to get away with these diamonds and now we're you know we're in france and uh and, but then something happens where she's found by out by her, you know, former, you know, thieves that she double cross. Um, and she's discovered by this older couple who mistake her for their daughter, who's also played by Rebecca Romaine. And here's where the movie kicks off into the story or what we think is the story as she like see she sees this other woman like she tr like tries to she pretends that she's gonna be like their daughter and she's in like a bath having a bath and then here's the daughter come home um she's just like lost her kids and she you know commits suicide and then this leads to, like there's a lot of stuff that's like i'm trying to explain to get to the movie then jumps ahead seven years <laughs> Or it's or it says seven years later, and what what you what you made me laugh so hard because Antonio Banderas is in the movie and he plays like a kind of sleazy paparazzi type photographer guy, 
and when we first meet him, he's kind of chilling on this balcony. And then we cut ahead seven years later, and we see him on the same balcony again, picking up a phone call like he did before. And he said, he's been there the whole time. He hasn't moved in seven years. I don't know. Yeah. I was like, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> and what happens, though, is then he's tasked to like take a photo of the wife of this ambassador and that happens to be Rebecca Romaine and but of course she doesn't want to be found out because the thieves when they see her photo is splattered all over pa uh, France uh, or Paris wherever it is uh, all France um, they realize oh shit it's her we can find her now and so it's like it's this kind of like cat and mouse game, but at the same time, this relationship unfolds with Banderas and Rebecca Romaine. Um, here's where I think we split company on this, because I, I like this movie just as a pure exercise in style. Like, I recognize that this is De Palma digging in his heels even more into not just Hitchcock, you know, not just having where you have like an icy blonde but we're also he's rel he's slathering this movie in film noir itself you know the idea of a heist gone wrong doubles you know we're also in france so he's you know trying have trying to give it a european flavor um and i know that you thought the movie is a little bit cold uh, and mm. but i i don't know i think that that's kind of the sort of the point of it and then when it eventually reveals what's really going on in the last 10-15 minutes I've, I've thought about the movie now for the last like day or so I actually kind of like what he does with that I think it's him doing what we've kind of talked about that he's using film like the idea of pop culture and cinema to comment on how we always like try to excuse stuff away when we're watching these characters be such like you know shits and like terrible people in film more yeah i would say my feelings throughout this movie very briefly before i go into even more detail very briefly are that i think a lot of it is just kind of dull and then i hate the ending and to break down why i think a lot of it's kind of dull I feel, um, Rebecca Romaine is the lead. I think she has the looks, but not the charisma or the versatility of a see, lot of the other leading ladies. See, I, I think that she has actually, I don't buy her when she's, be, when she, like, so there's this point where she tells Antonio Banderas, like, they're on a bridge at night, and she's like, I'm a bad girl. I'm a bad, or she, no, I think she says, I'm a bad guy. I'm bad. Uh. I didn't really buy her in that moment. Like, even as it's supposed to be, like, a, we know she's supposed to be playing up the femme fatale, mm. but in that moment, I didn't buy her. That said, I do buy her when she's being more emotional, like, when, she, when she's playing the other version of her character, the one who's, you know, the, this French woman. I actually like that scene a lot. She plays Shadwell, but I, for me, I think I said the reason why I didn't really cotton to this character, in addition to the fact that I don't think Rebecca Romaine could bring 
as much to the table as a lot of the other actresses in these other movies is that I said to you, her character is kind of a cool, calm, collected, professional criminal. She's a professional jewel thief. Yeah. She's well-versed in crime, and that means she keeps a... For a lot of the movie, she keeps a pretty icy demeanor, whereas I I feel like in a lot of other... The other diploma thrillers we watch, the characters are all kind of tortured and damaged and deranged, and they're either dealing with De Palma's version of mental illness, or they're just covered with flop sweat. And... <laughs> or they're Nicolas Cage. Yeah, so <laughs> I feel like, I said to you, like, when we were talking about Raising Kane, that I like the really big performances in all these other movies. I like that, frankly, De Palma has a lot of ham bone. Yeah. In his movies, I like these big personalities, these big dramatic character flaws. I like, you know, like, again, his mm. version of mental illness, which is very lurid and over the top. And I just felt like Femme Fatale had a lot of the things I like out of these other movies kind of drained out of it. Mm, but what, I feel like, though, there's still some erotic sex appeal and sleaze to the movie. Though. Like, I feel like that still worked for me a lot. It was not sleazy enough for me. And maybe... Uh, you didn't like when she tells Antonio Banderas, don't lick my ass, just fuck me. <laughs> I mean, I kind of liked her strip scene. The, that scene in the bar, yeah. Yeah. I kind of liked the strip scene in the bar, and... I don't know. I just didn't feel the heat the same way. And maybe I'm not the best person to judge. Maybe you need, like, a straight man or a lesbian <laughs> to better judge how much heat I, an actress is giving I, off. But... Don't get me wrong. I, I, I don't think she was great in the movie, but she worked for me enough that what she was asked to do, I thought she pulled off well. And I thought she worked with Antonio Banderas really well. I oh. thought, like, what's nice about him in the movie is that he's playing like a pretty good guy even though he's a sleazy photographer like he you, know, you would expect somebody more like uh oh i don't know like uh uh like i'm glad he wasn't william finley let me put it that way <laughs> Um, but I really, I liked him a lot, and I liked that, mo like, for that scene where he introduces himself to Rebecca Romaine by playing, like, a flamboyantly gay guy who, like, yeah. worms his way into her, like, hotel room. Yeah, um, I, I just, I don't have much to say about him one way or the other. I'm like, he's fine, I guess. I don't know. So, I felt like... So, I, so I guess because you weren't... Like we were listening, I think we both listened to this podcast that talked about this movie, and yeah. and they said that if you're not with if you're not with what De Palma is doing in this movie, then you won't like the movie. I guess you weren't really with it. I it was on a wavelength that I was never totally on, and I liked I liked certain things about it. I liked the opening scene. I thought like. Um, kind of like Snake Eyes, you have this long, like, show-offy opening scene. I liked that. I liked the, um, stripping scene. Yeah. I thought that was the only scene that really generated some erotic energy. Um, 
And there were, like, individual lines or moments I could get behind, but I found, even though the plot of the movie was, like, his pulpy thrillers, I found the tone of the movie was more like a conventional action film, Hmm. which I didn't really cotton to, and then I hated the ending. I, let me, let me put it this way, I... I don't think it entirely works, but I the more I think about it, the more I enjoy that he's saying, like, you know, what are we doing? Like, you know, what what am I doing with this? Like, I, I we're we you know this is this is my like weird bat like crazy dream of film noir, and I'm presenting it to you like this, and uh. I and I I kind of like that, like I. Let me put it this way. I think this movie worked for me as like an intellectual, on an intellectual level, more than a, an emotional one. As a kind of, almost like seeing him perform a magic trick or something. Yeah, but also like he's almost deconstructing what he's done before while just presenting like a conventional, uh-huh. you know, European type thriller. Um, yeah, like I still like the movie quite a bit. I just, but it is missing something. Like you're, it is like there is something that is a little bit out of remove in the movie. Yeah, that's exactly it. I feel like his other thrillers are just pulsing with life and energy and messiness, and yeah. I felt like this was comparatively bloodless. I also even felt like a lot of the really vivid color schemes from his other mm. movies is kind of gone in see, this I, movie. See, I don't know. I thought that there was still, like, color to this movie. I, I still thought he used, you know, these French locations, you know, with some creativity. Um, I like that. I like that image of the woman's legs running away from the two guys uh. on the street. Uh, I really like those shots. Um and yeah, I, and I just, yeah, I love the whole opening sequence. I think that's like one of his real virtuoso set pieces of his career. Um, and it's funny because this was probably my first of the th- of his, these types of thrillers that I saw. Yeah. Like, because I saw this in the theater. At this time, I hadn't seen Dress to Kill or Body Double or uh-huh. Raising Care, any of those. And I remember I actually, I loved the movie. Like, I was sucked into it until the ending and i thought like oh oh i don't like this now you know maybe that's why it took me so long to see these other De Palma movies because when i saw femme fatale in the movie theater when it came out you thought it was forgettable i didn't like it very much i thought it was forgettable and uh, even by 2002 i had started my path towards i was already really into movies about like stalking and obsession and like stealing people's identities and stuff i was in the very beginning of my attraction to these types of films and i saw femme fatale and i didn't really like it all these years later when we sat down to rewatch it i didn't remember why i didn't like it but now you do (laughs) yeah if anything it's funny i now that i've seen like him do this type of movie well so many times i do feel like i have a clear understanding of why this one didn't work for me yeah and part of me wonders if he could only go to this well so many times that might be it that might be it like he you know although what's funny though is that again then after this he like 10 years later does passion 
And I think he did come back to it and do it really well. Yeah, Passion was really good. Yeah, like we mentioned one more time that that's really worth checking out. Um, as we close out our episode, because I realize we've been talking for quite a while now. Yeah. Um, no one's going to listen to all of this. Oh, I think they will. You know, what else do people have to do right now? <laughs> um, I want to mention one more thing with De Palma. Again, we talked about how... He's if he's not necessarily like the greatest, you know, deepest filmmaker, a la like, you know, a Kubrick or, um, or even Scorsese, he's a master stylist at what he does. Yeah, it would be worth mentioning too. The last thing we watched before we recorded, which was his music video for Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark, which is sheer brilliance, and it's just oh so good. It's just total joy. It's yeah. it's fun for me to think that in 1984 he did two music videos, one for Frankie Goes to Hollywood and one for <laughs> Bruce Springsteen, and <laughs> and you know and he had the idea of Bruce bringing up Courtney Cox on stage. <laughs> so every time if you see Bruce live and he brings someone on stage, thank you Brian De Palma. <laughs> well, do you have any closing statements in terms of? thematic commonalities you noticed or what do you take from De Palma having watched all these movies together? What did you learn about him? What did you learn about yourself? What did you learn uh, about the cinema? <laughs> do you have a closing statement? If, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear Brian De Palma say? <laughs> um, no, I think that revisiting his work, I what I appreciate and get a kick out of so much from him as a filmmaker is that I think he is a personal filmmaker. I think that, you know, you can watch one of his movies and know he made it, yeah. which is something that we can't say about for all filmmakers. I mean, I can't tell you, I don't even remember who the fuck directed, like, When the Bow Breaks. <laughs> and I can't necessarily say that, like, the director of the intruder is like any great shakes even though that you know that was kind of a fun movie um but you watch one of his films and you can feel his presence and it's because you know uh Truffaut had this like one of these statements about cinema which i i don't necessarily entirely agree with but i but i kind of get what he mean meant he said that when he watches a movie, he wants to feel the director's total joy or total despair. He doesn't <laughs> want to feel anything in between. And when I'm watching the De Palma movie, I'm feeling his joy in creating these set pieces. When he's creating this kind of lurid pop aesthetic that he is, you know, he knows how to use the camera. He has a lot of technical know-how. And yet he also generally speaking casts his films very well and trusts them to try to flesh out his ideas um there's actually one more thing too he if you watch on if you go on youtube there's this interview with him and scorsese but uh, how can you uh, can, can you talk about differences in the way you work um is there something that would never yeah, happen we, in a De Palma film? God, for example? Absolutely. I've never seen you. Uh, really? I want to hear you. You come on, he's, he's been on my set. He's been sitting there sometimes with directing scenes and watching it. But I never, saw, I never came to around your sets. No. No. <laughs> you said absolutely. What, what is different about the way you make a film, Brian? Well, 
see, Marty, I think Marty gets these incredible performances from actors, mainly because he spends a lot of time in developing kind of very deep character relationships. Mm -hmm. My movies tend to be so much function on a kind of, uh, uh, kind of stylization and a kind of cinematic storytelling. They don't depend on the character scenes as much as Marty's movies do. And I wish my movies yeah. were more like Marty, and maybe in some cases Marty wishes his movies were more like mine. Yeah. We have very different attitudes of, uh, when we attack material. Actors are more important to him than to you in some way. Well, mm. I need actors even though uh, a, lot, a lot more than Marty in some cases because I have so, so little character scenes that when I get in, I got to get the get best performance in. imaginable mm -hmm. because they're only on He's the got, screen yeah, that too much. much. And I thought that was kind of interesting that he was very frank about that. Yeah, I... I agreed watching these movies so close together, a very distinctive visual style was apparent to me. And he really does build it, a lot of dioramas and puzzle boxes, doesn't he? He creates a lot of dioramas and puzzle boxes, and you know, he loves photographing and following women and, <laughs> and putting women in danger. Like, he's... It's like someone who has studied both Antonioni and like giallo schlock <laughs> and has kind of merged the two like he understands what can be pleasurable in a more you know artistic cinema and yet he also understands that people sometimes really have like a thrill from seeing you know someone killed in a creative way yeah when i was thinking of common themes i mentioned earlier that i feel like all of his movies kind of address this idea that we live our life through this filter of artificiality that pop culture has constructed for us. Mm -hmm. And another thing I kind of took from a lot of these movies is that I remember when I read or I listened to an interview with the woman who made American Cycle, Mary Heron. Heron. Mary Heron. She said that American... American Psycho, um, and she talked about the problem she had with the censors getting the movie made. And she said that when she was dealing with the ratings board, the message she got from them is that there's no, there's no fear of violence in America. Like, there's no American cultural fear of violence, but there's a deep cultural fear of sex. Mm. Yes. And she said that she feels like a lot of people walk around with this attitude thinking that I need to be held back by society because if I'm not, my sexuality will destroy everything. Oh. And she and she said that she didn't think anyone walks around in America thinking of that about violence. Nobody fears the violence in their own hearts, mm -hmm. but they fear how their sex drives could potentially destroy <laughs> yeah. the social contract and destroy the social fabric of America. Yeah. And listening to her comments about that, they really stuck with me. Like, I listened yeah. to this interview years ago, and mm -hmm. I think his movies are both, like, horny, but also very scared of the power of that horniness. Well, and it's funny, too, then talking about, like, the censor board, because he, like I said, he he had to battle with the censors over his movies, because, like I said, D Dress to Kill got next originally, Scarface got an X, and that was actually all for violence and, I think, body double, too. 
Um, and what was funny with Scarface, one last point um, about that, he kept like trying to cut stuff and resubmitting it, and each time it got an X, and he said he, he upset a lot of people like in, at the studio because eventually he put everything back in <laughs> and submitted it, and I think that... I think it did get an R. And he said, if it's going to be an X on the third time I submit it, just why not make it the first time around? <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, it's funny that, again, like, he had to keep trimming stuff like the, you know, Angie Dickinson's body doubles pubic hair. Because, yes. God forbid... <gasps> You know, people are watching an R-rated movie see too much pubic hair. So, yeah, I definitely think a lot of his movies kind of um, that are both sexy but also do trade in this idea that they, unfettered sexuality is dangerous. Yeah, he, he, he does it well. I think that's what it comes down to. He does that stuff when he's when he's firing on all cylinders. He does it pretty well. I also think there's a through line of how do we construct our own identities? Because one of the things I was thinking about, maybe why De Palma keeps coming back to the concept of doubles and doppelgangers and multiple personalities is he's flirting with this idea of how do we define who we are? How yeah. do we define ourselves? Do we mm -hmm. define ourselves solely in relation to others? Do we define ourselves through what we do or what we watch or what we wear? And I, I don't feel like a lot of his characters define them. Def I don't feel like a lot of his characters are capable of defining their own identities um, without referencing their external environment yeah and and that goes back to like he's talked many many times about how vertigo was kind of like the 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 the, the mm. keynote movie of his life that when he saw vertigo he it, it really made a huge impact on him which mm. you know that movie has a lot of you know the yeah. stuff he's gone back to and and we didn't watch this movie but he made this movie in the 70s called Obsession, uh -huh. and that's basically a remake of Vertigo. But yeah, so I think a lot of his movies um, kind of circle around this idea <clears> that <throat> our identities are actually rather fragile and weak and can be very easily disrupted. They can be easily disrupted or and, and, and manipulated, yeah. Yeah, so I think he also flirts a lot with this idea of the fragility of identity. Yeah. And how very easy it is, how very easy it would be to kind of give into your appetites and give yourself over to sexual obsession or to your violent impulses. Yeah. Or I didn't really think about it that way. That's, that's really... I literally just thought of this now. Yeah. So, and, but and maybe that even goes a bit into Phantom of the Paradise. <laughs> But yeah, so I was thinking that a lot of his movies reflect, yeah, this idea that even people who think of themselves as like stable and well-adjusted, they're always on the precipice of some kind of breakdown. Yeah. At any point. Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, comically becoming like a murderous trans person <laughs> <laughs> when it's not done well. Well, 
so thank you everyone for listening to this long episode uh we really went in depth on this one um you know i think we do that every once in a while i think this kind of pairs pretty well with our long long discussion about star wars is this our longest episode i wonder if the star wars episode is longer that they're they're closely tied um i think i might put this all up as one episode too instead of cutting it up um you know maybe next time we'll do a slightly shorter one (laughs) Uh, we, we won't stuff this one to the gills but but thank you for listening all the way. Well, De Palma is a man of excess, so I think it befits him as, that we do a long as as, De Palma, as as he's his kind of catchphrase through most of that documentary. Holy mackerel! <laughs> <laughs> Which is such an adorable old man thing to say. Yeah, I just love it. Uh, yeah. So if you have any thoughts about De Palma that you want to share, if there's anything we didn't touch on or or movies that he made that you wish we talked about because like i said the man made like 30 movies um wages of cinema gmail.com you can also send us a tweet at wages of cinema or on facebook or also instagram uh so yeah next time hopefully we'll talk about movies i don't know what else we talk about i definitely want to be able to talk about the movie unhinged yes oh yeah yeah there's yeah there's a movie that's supposed to be coming out in theaters if theaters someday open up again and unhinged will be the first movie to come out even before Tenet. So we'll see, uh, if Russell Crowe being, you know, like a psychopath killer guy will, you know, impress us. I hope so. All, All right. right. Good night, everyone. Until next time, I'm Jack. And I'm Life Lady Scory. And the wages of cinema is... Alright, good night.